Hey, Nick. Yes? Do you like horror movies? Oh, you know I do. Do you like weird, extreme, taboo, and cult horror movies? Of course. They're my favorite kind. Well, I've got some news for you. Because MVD Entertainment Group and the popular Rue Morgue magazine have teamed up to launch the Midnight Movie Society. What? Yeah. They are a curated subscription video on demand service specializing in extreme underground, taboo, and cult horror movies. Now, genre fans can gain access to a film library of shocking underground, outrageous gore, creature features, cult classics, and much more. Those with a taste for the weirdest and wildest reaches of genre cinema will not be disappointed. The bigger platforms are catering to the masses and have gone puritanical in many cases, making it very difficult for filmmakers to reach their audiences, says Ed Seaman, COO of MVD Entertainment Group. MVD has a great deal of this type of content, and when it is live on major platforms, it performs really well. Maybe too well. For some of the mainstream platforms. The Midnight Movie Society will also cater to more traditional horror fare as well, pulling from the thousands of film hours from in MVD's vast catalog. In addition, Rumord will also be finding and curating fresh and unusual content for the service. Adriana Gober, director of programming, says as larger streaming platforms continue to crack down on content, there's an urgent need to create a space for boundary-pushing films unencumbered by strangling content restrictions. That I don't know why that word was so hard for me to say. <laughs> strangling. Strangling, especially given the content. As a lifelong horror fan, I'm proud and excited to be working with MVD Entertainment Group and genre champions Rumor Magazine to bring Midnight Movie Society to the masses. Rumor Magazine is a name that everyone can trust. It's actually a horror magazine I used to buy back in the day, and they're Canadian, so you know they're extra fucking weird. And nice. Yeah, and nice. Best of all, Midnight Movie Society is supplying all of our amazing listeners with an opportunity to get on board and try the service out for themselves. If you go to www midnightmoviesociety.com you can save 33% off your first three months of Midnight Movie Society by using the promo code SHAMELESS SHAMELESS! SHAMELESS! Own promo code! Yes, you heard me, you will save a whopping 33% on your first three months. That's just insanity to me. So, once again, go to www.midnightmoviesociety.com and use the promo code SHAMELESS S-H-A-M-E-L-I-S-T Shameless. No spaces. No spaces. All one word. Shameless. It's like you're yelling it at someone. Yell it at the promo code, but also make sure you type it in. But before we actually talk about Dune for real, Nick, how are you? Uh, I'm good. I'm real good. The weather's starting to warm up over here. and It was, it um, was starting to here. Like, it was like a couple days of being 50 degrees, and we're like, fuck yeah, weather. And now it's like 32 again. I'm like, oh my god. Oh, no, the last two days I haven't even had to wear a jacket. I uh, wore shorts one day. I mean, it was pre-shorts weather, now but I could get away with it. Now that's the Scotsnite in you. Like, yeah, as as totally. It's like shorts, shorts. <laughs> um, Have I ever told you about my so, love-hate relationship with shorts? Uh, I don't think so. It's, well, it's not that it comes up very often. I've, I've ranted to Amanda about it before, where it's one of those things, like, I logistic, like, realistically, just even, just the way, I don't love shorts. Like, I don't love the way they look on me, but I don't like yeah. being warm. So, like, I, it's one of those, sh- shorts are, like, one of those necessary evil type things. Like, I'd much rather wear pants or jeans year-round, but I don't like sweating. I don't like being warm. So, it's like, you know, short pants are the way to go. 
Okay, Shorts, I don't like you and you don't like me. Shorts are like, but I like you. I was like, well, I still don't like you. <laughs> I don't know. I was thinking of that. Th- I was thinking of that today. It's like, I just, uh, uh, pants look better. Shorts are just weird and blocky. Yeah. Yeah. Well, at least they were for the longest time. Now, since we're starting to get to the point of, like, shorts that actually fit men because men are no that longer are... afraid to wear something that's, you know, fit to their body, to, they're starting to, to get show better. off my gorgeous legs. Yes, we have calves. We got to show those fuckers off. Mm-hmm. Hell yeah. So weather's been nice in Easton. I am beautiful. <laughs> you are, Nick. And the weather is nice. <laughs> it's funny. Since, well, you've seen on Facebook Amanda's uh, plant addiction. Uh, I yep, love that. Ra- which Raina also has. <laughs> uh, which is which I, I, I kind of deduced by the fact that every time Amanda posts something about plants, she heart reacts it. But I, <laughs> she, she, I, lo- I, lo- I love that when we come to visit, she's already got plant stores she wants to take Amanda to. <laughs> It's like this. Big, yes, this brings me joy. Our families are coming together again <laughs> at some <Yay>! point. <laughs> uh, um, yes, there's uh, Garden Treasures in Easton. Mm-hmm. That um, that's that's the top one that I'd recommend. Okay, so we'll have to take her there. That would be great. This episode brought to you by Garden Treasures in Easton. Garden Treasures. Hey, do you like plants? Well, <laughs> I've got good news for you. <laughs> Uh, they made sure they wet their plants daily (laughs) dad joke (laughs) oh oh i came up with a dad joke restaurant the other day i told amanda we got to start our own pasta pasta restaurant called oh noki didn't (laughs) (laughs) my absolute favorite one that i've made up is um um i (laughs) We, we went to a Mediterranean restaurant, and we were going to order the bread uh, before the meal, but I told her that would be a non-starter. <laughs> it just keeps it just It's so good. <laughs> this, this episode is brought to you by Dad Jokes. Well, how have you been, Michael? You always ask me. I, now I'm going to ask you. you. I'm going to flip it on I've you. I've been really good i don't know like good. i've been like with the weather getting nicer it's been inconsistent but it's been getting nicer <laughs> um i've been it's been aff- affecting my mood in a positive way i got a haircut the other day and the haircut's kind of like my, my what i do it's like a small thing i can do to make myself feel better you know like yeah. you know self-love is important we live in a world i i cleaned up the beard mm-hmm. i did too a little I... bit yeah, uh, self love is both looking very light spring. Thank you, clean. Thank you, and like I said, self love is very important. I think it's a thing that yes. not enough men talk about, or they they don't give themselves enough credit for. It. And you got to do things to make yourself feel good. But on top of that, um, uh, it's going to be a jam packed weekend. Friday, the Milwaukee Admirals, the our local AHL hockey team, is is doing a dog day. So we're going to take Frankenstein and Vinny to go see some hockey. Yes. Um, Friday is uh. Probably you know my my friend Kyle who's been on the show. He uh, yep. he's probably he, he's yes he's the you if of in town like he's like the same level <laughs> friend that you are, but he lives in Milwaukee. But I still probably don't see him as much as I'd like to because he's so busy. Um, right. His his bachelor party is on Saturday, and we're going. Have you heard Ooh. of a restaurant in Milwaukee called the Safe House? I've been. Well, he's having it at the Safe House. I don't remember. I don't remember much about it because I was very inebriated. <laughs> well, that's probably for the best because it is spy themed. So you're not supposed to remember. It. 
but we're going to the safe house for uh for dinner and everything and then we're doing a an escape room afterwards because he's he's oh, super awesome. into spy stuff um cool and then i've got a horror convention coming up in cincinnati that i'm excited for yes. i was supposed to meet sam raimi but he had to cancel because he's shooting oh. dr strange but i get to meet his brother ted and i get to meet Candyman. that's awesome yeah oh i want to see the new Candyman. i do too I mean, you know, Tony Todd will never be beat, but um, but the trailer looks very it, it good. It looks phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And then I'm still kind of like, I'm 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 hoping, I'm hopeful that this coronavirus scare that's been going around doesn't affect travel in September because I'm supposed to go to Disney World in September. I'm doing really good. I got my hair cut. Awesome. Things are coming up Millhouse. It's been good. <laughs> Speaking of men needing to talk more about their self-love, you know what? Well, not self-love. That got weird. <laughs> that got weird. <laughs> Self-care. Self-care. Care. Did I say self-love earlier or did I say self-care earlier? I don't I don't, I don't remember. remember. <laughs> but God, I hope you said self-love. <laughs> God, this is going to be our weirdest You know what one. I did yesterday? Having nothing to do with self-love and everything to do with self-care. <laughs> oh, my God. I got I, I left work a little bit early. I got home. Raina still had another hour to work. So I drew myself a warm bath. Opened up the turns on the window so I could look out on our yard in that, on that warm day. And I just liked some friggin' like lavender shit in the bathtub or some whatever was in the fancy floral bottle and like i just sat there and had a had a love loverly uh man bath there you go it's that's what's important and i loved every second of it i'm happy for you (laughs) men if you're listening you gotta take care of yourselves gotta take those baths you do take those lavender baths those haircuts make yourself smell good it's important yeah i put some oil up in your your beard you know some Yeah. yeah Did you smell like a lumberjack? So should we okay. actually talk about Dune? We sh- you think we should? Uh, no, I think that was a great episode. Let's uh, we'll we'll see you next time. And thanks for listening. Make sure you follow us. On all I've got two words for you. <laughs> Watch Dune. Sip of coffee for the working man. <laughs> dirtle, dirtle. Yep, delicious. movie podcast actually discusses movies. Be aware that it may discuss any of the following elements. Endings, surprise twists, unexpected cameos, and all manner of spoilers. If this doesn't appeal to you, why listen to a movie podcast? Without further ado, please enjoy our feature presentation, The Shameless Picture Show. Another episode of the Shameless Picture Show. I am Michael Byers, and with me, as always, is a man whose name is a killing word. Nick Richards. <laughs> um, so before we talk about the movie at hand, we should mention a, a weird moment of serendipity with the podcast. Yes. Unfortunate, but uh, yeah, the timing is was strange on it. Yeah, so on this episode, we are we will be discussing David Lynch's sci-fi epic, Dune, um, and then uh, right, the, I want to say what happened yesterday, right? It was um, March uh, two 8th. days ago so, yeah. on the eighth. I think it was announced the morning of right. the ninth. So March eighth, and we are recording this on March tenth. Actor in Dune, 
Max von Sydow actually passed away. And Max von Sydow has been on this podcast a couple times, not personally, sadly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Unfortunately. He was... He, uh, when we, we discussed The Exorcist. The Exorcist, yes, of course. Uh, and I think that might have been the only other time besides um, here on Dune. But still, you know, he's a name that I've always known as a child. Um, and I think he's got a very fascinating story when it comes to The Exorcist. Uh, I know, and I know you're a big fan of him, Nick. So before I tell my story, yep. tell me about your... your uh, your friendship with Max Funz. <laughs> well, me, me and Max, or Carl, as, as uh, you know, his friends know him. Uh, no, I, I discovered uh, Max von Sydow's work uh, with The Exorcist uh, mm-hmm. in that iconic role. His, his booming, low, strong voice with that, mm-hmm. uh, I, I'm, I'm assuming, Swedish accent. I don't know Swedish accents, but he was born and raised in sweden um it says i find his his biography on imdb fascinating because the first two lines are he was born uh to a middle class family Mm -hmm. he is the son of baroness maria margaretta fuck yeah (laughs) a middle class baroness a middle I'm class sure baroness. A, a, a middle class baroness okay i'm sure that is a thing but it's just like it's just... for somebody who's doesn't know many baronesses it sounds like oh you not don't a class you don't thing. know any baronesses <laughs> i well baron i as we pluralize them <laughs> the, the the plural of course yeah um and i i also saw um uh the seven seal uh far too young to appreciate it Mm -hmm. like i would love to revisit it and and this may be the impetus that i need to rewatch it i've actually never seen it so okay maybe that's a shameless episode it could be um and recently i saw him again when i rewatched what dreams may come okay have you seen that i have not that that's an episode that i'd really like to let me let me write these down Wow, that looks terrible. Like my handwriting, <laughs> not the movie. Okay. Um, <laughs> Boy, those movies look like crap. <laughs> but then, like, one thing I appreciate about Max von Sydow is he seemed like, and I'm I'm just shooting from the hip here. I don't know at all. But he seems like a man who not only enjoyed to work, but he didn't seem to have this air of pretension about him where there's projects that seem below him. Because he will do things like The Seven Steel or Wild Strawberries with Igmar Bergman. But then he will then and he did Dune, which, you know, looking at the script for Dune, it could go either way, to be fair. Right. Be yeah, a lot of people did Dune. That's something yeah. that we'll definitely be talking uh, Conan about. Conan the Barbarian. But then he also did cast. shit like uh, a Strange Brew. <laughs> you know, uh, Judge Dredd he did. Uh, and then more, uh, more recently, for uh, younger fans, he was—he had a very small role in *The Force Awakens*. He was apparently in *Game of Thrones*, and he did a voice on *The Simpsons*. So, like, he—he—he's—he's nice. he's a prestigious actor who's done prestigious things. But you know, he's like, "Fuck it," you know, I'm gonna—I'm the guy who did *The Seven Seal*. I'm gonna be in *Rush Hour 3*. Fuck you. <laughs> what I what I really love about his acting is. <clears throat> how much how much he says with so few words yeah like that man's face and and his the the complexity of his deliveries 
are impeccable. Yeah, you can. It's his face says everything. He's he's very good at that. Um, you feel that everything he's saying or reacting to, he feels. Um, because that's hard. That's one of the hardest. Part. I've done some acting, not a whole lot, but reacting is the hardest part about acting. Anyone yeah. can come out there and say lines. To say them convincingly is one thing, but then being a person who's been in front of the camera, it's it's very hard to get out of your own head, listen to what the other person's saying, reacting, and tell a story just through your just through your face. It's yeah. incredibly difficult. So, yeah. um, but I do have a funny story about Max von Sydow. I might have told it on the Exorcist episode, but you know, I don't imagine everyone who's listened to this show has listened to every single episode. While you should. <laughs> um, so, on the Exorcist, Max von Sydow played Father Marin. At the time of making the power of Christ compels you, Father Marin, for all intents and purposes, looks like he's probably like a seventy-year-old man, sixty-seven-year-old <laughs> man. Right. That Max von Sydow at the time was in his maybe late thirties, early forties at the time of making the film but what dick smith's makeup job was so good that he looked convincingly old oh my god and then apparently he was i didn't realize and that. so many people since for a lot of people uh max that was like the for a lot of american audiences that was like a, a big film for getting his name out there because he's been acting for so long um that um so he was getting calls from people be like oh we need we need an older actor they all thought so many casting agents thought he was an old man and he was getting (laughs) calls like oh we need an older actor and he's like well i'm i'm in my i want to say he was like 39 it would have been it it was when when did the exorcist come out so the exorcist came out in 1974 73 okay so he would have been about 45 so 45 but, t- but um, still, not not he he looked like he was in his seventies. Yes, so he was getting yeah. roles. He, people were calling him, be like, "We need a seventy-year-old," and he's like, "Well, I'm forty-five, so <laughs> do you have any roles for forty-five-year-olds?" <laughs> so I just I love that story that like not only is he such a convincing actor, but Dick Smith's makeup job was so good that the two of them came together. Because I've seen old age makeup where I didn't believe the person at all, and right. I've seen. You know, so it takes a, a skilled actor to be under that makeup to ma- truly make people believe, right? So not not to overdo the oh I'm a you know to mm-hmm. over exaggerate those. Also, I I'm looking at I'm since I'm looking at Max von Sydow's uh, Wikipedia page at the moment. I also love that he voiced himself in video games as well. He was in the <laughs> Ghostbusters video game, the Lego Star Wars video game. And he also apparently did a voice in the video game Skyrim, which so it's like the man just liked to work. Yes, he, yes. So yep. that's really cool of him. I've I've definitely I I I'm trying to remember what character, but I can hear his voice. Esburn. Esburn. He narrated. Mm. He also narrated the game's debut trailer. Okay. So I've I've played a lot of Skyrim. So so have I. <laughs> um. <laughs> So yeah, so um, again, the the timing of this is strange, and and he will be missed. Though he lived a very, I think he was ninety one. It's like when uh, uh, we did the Eyes of Laura Mars episode, and Renee Abergianis passed away right around yeah, then too. So yeah. Oh, what? We need to stop reviewing films. We're killing actors. Who? Quick! Who don't we like? <laughs> Uh, I, I had so many retorts, but I don't want to. I, I, that would have been mean. Yes. 
So we'll just go on with the movie. So we're just moving yeah. on. So uh, thank you, uh, Max, for um, all of the wonderful roles you've given us over the years. When you're done for the day, done for, with a project, when you're off duty, what do you do to just distance yourself and become Max the person, not Max the actor? How do you just... Well, I, when I yeah. step out of my costume and, and take off my makeup, if I have some, I am me. Uh, it doesn't take long to get. You have to get out of the part when you finish. When you get out, get off the stage, or get off uh, the platform in the film, whatever. It's me. <clears throat> I, I, I never. How should I say? I never. Uh, mix myself up with the parts I play. When the part is over, the part is over, and it's, it's me. So, voila. So, on today's episode, as we mentioned before, so we will be watching. Da- well, we did watch. We'll be discussing David Lynch's Dune. On the harsh desert planet Arrakis, aka Dune. <clears throat> Let me just hold on. Let me get another. I'm going to get a sip of water this time, and then start over. Okay. For the freelancing, man. <sighs> yep. On the harsh desert planet Arrakis, a.k.a. Dune, two royal families are fighting over a powerful drug, Melange, also referred to as Spice. Spice is a powerful thing that can give its users a longer lifespan, heightening visions, and necessary. it's also necessary for space travel. It's highly addictive and sought after. The House Atreides is now to take over control of Dune and its spice mines, much to the protest of the House Harkonnen, who did have control over it. Paul Atreides, the heir to the throne, has a death threat on his head because of his probability of being a godlike supervillain. Sorry, godlike super being. So, Baron Harkonnen plans to not only kill Paul, but take over Dune and control the flow of spice throughout the galaxy because, as Baron Harkonnen says, he, he who controls the spice controls the universe. Whoever controls the universe gets the women. <laughs> yes. Plus, there are sandworms. Giant fucking sandworms. <laughs> Dune is a science fiction fantasy film written and directed by David Lynch from a popular book by Frank Herbert. Despite it being a big $40 million blockbuster by a young, talented up-and-comer, the film was a flop and poorly reviewed. Many felt the film was incomprehensible, poorly structured, and narratively unpleasing. On top of that, considering Dune was one of the most well-known sci-fi novels of all time, fans of the book turned their back on the movie for how different it was from the book. However, the film isn't without its fans, and it's picked up a slight cult following over the years. People who see what Lynch was trying to do, and many praise the film for its action, its editing, and, of course, its special effects. David Lynch has since disowned the movie and feels it's one of the worst worst films he's made. Uh, because he doesn't feel he was the right person for the job. But, as said before, the film isn't without merit. It has some amazing visual effects and makeup work, features a stunning score by Toto and Brian Eno, lush cinematography by Freddie Francis, and an all-star cast that is compromised of Kyle MacLachlan, Virginia Madsen, Brad Dorif, Jose Ferrar, Freddie Jones, Patrick Stewart, Kenneth McMillan, Dean Stockwell, fucking Sting, and the late, great Max von Sydow. Plus many, many more. Roll the trailer! Trailer time! <laughs> We're getting movie sign! You don't got movie sign till I say you got movie sign, capiche? 
All right, go ahead, you crumb bums. Thank you. A beginning is a very delicate time. Know then that it is the year 10,191. In this time, the most precious substance in the universe is the spice melange. The spice extends life. The spice exists on only one planet in the entire universe. The planet is Arrakis, also known as Dune. You are about to enter a world where the unexpected. Many dangers exist on Arrakis. The unknown and incredible secrets have been kept on this planet. And the unbelievable meet. I see two great houses. Where kingdoms are built on Earth that moves. But we have worms sign the likes of which even God has never seen. And skies are filled with fire. The prophecy which will cleanse the universe and bring us out of darkness. Where a young warrior is called upon to free his people. A world that holds creation's greatest treasure. He who controls the spice controls the universe. And greatest terrors. This is genocide. The deliberate and systematic destruction of all life on Arrakis. The man. <laughs> I will kill him! I will love you forever. And the magical. Father, the sleeper has awakened! Will have their final battle. Show the slightest pity or mercy. Emperor, we come for you. Doom, a spectacular journey through the wonders of space and the mysteries of time. From the boundaries of the incredible to the borders of the impossible. Now, Frank Herbert's widely read, talked about, and cherished masterpiece comes to the screen. Dino De Laurentiis presents Dune, a world beyond your experience, beyond your imagination. That was a hard fucking movie to summarize. Oh, God. It's and a, I didn't even do a good job yes. with it. Fuck. I, th- I thought you did as good of a job as could be done. I laid down the very simple groundwork. Yeah. Um, one thing that I did read um, was um, an interview with a, a more recent interview with David Lynch, who, while he doesn't, he he was talking about. Now I'm going to have to find this so that I can actually like reference it in our in our description. But um, he was talking about his two big flops. Yeah. So Dune and Firewalk with me. Yeah. And one thing that he did say is that, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, he is not quite 
as hard on Dune today as he was back then. Mm -hmm. And he kind of talked about it in the framework of um, the social consciousness and how when a film comes out, um, it's its reaction is dictated by the social consciousness of the moment. Yes. And how as that social consciousness changes over the years, uh, assuming your film is lucky enough to like still be thought of, like the reaction to it also changes. Um, and he, he was being, uh, it seemed to me from what little I've read of his reactions over the years, that his reactions have softened mm-hmm. uh, to Dune the, as more time goes on. Yeah, I feel like because um, if you think about where he was at the time, and it's also <clears throat> it's also worth mentioning the type of d- filmmaker David Lynch was going into this, which I will talk about in just a second. But it, there's a lot of pressure on on this film, and um, you know he had a reasonably big hit with the Elephant Man, and this is the film he does right after it. And when you're a young filmmaker in Hollywood and, you know, that old expression, you're only as good as your last film, sure. I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's, <clears throat> it's very easy to, to, to point at a film like this and be like, that's what I did wrong. But even if you think about David Lynch, because even before we watched Dune, I, um, so very recently, Amanda and I got a chance to see David Lynch's movie Wild at Heart in, in a theater. We actually got to see it on 35mm film. Which is a film that he did. I want to say it's two films after Dune. And it's a very different, obviously very different style than Dune. It's not as weird as he can get, but it's still pretty weird. But <laughs> I, I was I was intrigued by David Lynch because he's a filmmaker I respect, but I still have one, I would say I'm no expert when it comes to him. Uh, and he's he's a fascinating figure because he didn't get into the world of film with the intention of being a filmmaker. So he was an artist. He was an artist. Uh, he went to school for fine arts and was just finding different ways to express himself. So when he was doing art, he also found that he could do animation. And his early films were animation. And then he started doing things with live action. Like I, I watched a movie of his from the Criterion Collection called The Amputee that he shot in 1974. And it's one of his early live action shorts, and it's just a an amputee writing a list of things that she wants to tell people. Tell people, and it's it's visual comedy with David Lynch playing a nurse trying to like bandage up her legs, and things things keep going wrong. So like he's not like a, a super narrative style filmmaker. He's sure. he's an art he's an art filmmaker, and then that all culminated with the with um, Eraserhead. That movie did so well on the midnight circuit and with art houses that Mel Brooks saw the film and was like, hey, this I think this guy, I, I might be misremembering, but he's like, hey, I think this guy could do something interesting with a little bit of money and did The Elephant Man. And then you go from doing An Elephant Man, which is a prestige picture, still a little weird, but weird enough, and Eraserhead to doing Dune. <laughs> to doing, I don't want to call it this, but for lack of a better term, a Star Wars ripoff, because Star Wars were so popular still at this time that like, let's do another movie that has some elements from Star Wars, and David Lynch even admits he wanted to work some of that in. Yeah. So it's it's. I'm not surprised that there's a disconnect. Right. And actually, I, I have more to say about that, but I want to just kind of mention that, that I'm not surprised that he was hard on this film. Sure. 
Um, yeah, and it's I, I imagine it's a lot easier to look back on one particular film project with the benefit of hindsight and saying it as just one step on an overall successful film career than it is when it's like your biggest project to date, people are taking risks on you in a big way, and it's a big failure. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's easier to look back on it and see that you did rebound and you still had an excellent career and um, and, and to look at it with a little more... And- uh, and Dune was a, t- space. Well, Dune was Dune was a little hard not to crack, because so the story that David Lynch told was that before he got be, so he Dino De Laurentiis wanted to make the film, and he essentially approached David Lynch and and said, "Hey, I think you'd be good for this movie. Read this book." And David Lynch read the book and said he really liked it, and he liked Dino. So he wanted to make the film, but like they've been trying to make this film back since I want to say the '60s when it first came out, and there was an early version of the film by uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky, who they actually made a whole documentary about his vision of this film. Okay, and people say that if he would have made it, Star Wars wouldn't have been nearly as big of a deal because he it was it was uh, um, Dan O'Banion who wrote Alien helped write this script and it would have been involved with it pink floyd was going to do the music hr geiger wow. who did the effects and Al- who did the 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 look of alien was going to be involved right. with it salvador dali was going to play the emperor orson wells was going to play harkonnen oh mick jagger was going to play <laughs> fade so like they're all these big fucking names and it didn't happen and then ridley scott was supposed to make the movie and it didn't happen so so many alien tie-ins yeah so and it's like and the the rumor has it that at one point david lynch was supposed to direct uh one of the star wars sequels oh okay so it's just this weird history that's just this giant tome of a book my 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 friend josephine talked to me about the book and said it's very difficult it's a very difficult novel to adapt because it's not only very dense uh, every pair, every chapter begins, and I might be misremembering her words, but every chapter begins with like almost like a data log or like a journal entry, kind of setting things up before they get into the narrative of it. And she said, "Wow, um, uh, she actually says that David Lynch is a better world builder than than Frank Herbert was, and does a <laughs> lot for the world that he's trying to build build up." So. There's this, a lot of these weirdnesses that kind of make this a really hard book to adapt. Yeah. Well, and, you know, that that breaks out into a whole conversation about world building. Um, I think, for my money, I've had this conversation with many different people who feel dramatically different about it. Um, world building on this type of scale I think is can be very exciting yeah but it's done in my opinion wrong so many times when you're building a world of that scale and then you lose sight of of the story of the characters yeah and and I think this suffered from that a little bit and why <clears throat> Kind of the the Rosetta Stone of it all is Star Wars: A New Hope, and what 
uh, George Lucas got so right is that he managed to build this giant world, but didn't lose sight of the story of of Luke mm-hmm. and and Leia and Han and she, like it it was a R two and C three PO. It was a it was about the journey of a few people. The whole movie was about them. And the world building was the set dressing to it. And and it didn't go into this like, well, Dagobah was a, you know, let me yeah. tell you the history of Dagobah and the political systems of, you know, this, that, or the other thing. And that's where the prequels to Star Wars, they fell back into that like world building trap yeah. of now let's talk about the world and the politics and the, the this, that, and the other thing. The world building, and oh, sorry. It felt more like doing yeah, The world building in Star Wars came gradually. You know, other mm-hmm. than the opening crawl, um, we it starts off small. We start off in a spaceship. We meet these robots. We meet a person that is referred to as a princess. We we just kind of get all these elements slowly over time. Whereas Dune begins with a long form of exposition from a character who we <laughs> don't even know the significance of. And we, I only know the significance of her because Josephine explained it to me. Right. Um, who's breaking down the world. It felt very dense, very much like the Dark Crystal did for me. Yeah, and yeah, I, I kind sure. of struggled with it because... <clears throat> Um, it was just is is all these names being thrown at me that I can't quite comprehend. Exposition. You spend. Oops, sorry. Continue. You you spend so much time trying to understand all of these uh, political connections and how everything relates to each other that you're not able to slide into the story. Yes, and uh, that is that is exactly how I felt on both of those. Films. Exposition, such heavy exposition happening right at the beginning. For me, as a deterrent, I, I I consider the the crawl at the beginning of Star Wars to be a little bit different, and then say something in Star Trek where every episode begins with the captain's log is a little different because that's a personalized yeah. journal. But even in Star Trek, where they throw a lot at you, it it happens in small little bite sized increments. And one thing that David Lynch is very good at is David Lynch has a is usually very good with character, very good with tone, and very good with with making us care about these characters. He's a very weird filmmaker, but I don't imagine you watched Twin Peaks and didn't didn't feel something when we found Laura Palmer's body. Here's a character we've never met before and we felt something. Yeah. He make- or or Kyle McLaughlin's yep. character in Twin Peaks also as he's going on and on about the pie and the coffee and and talking to uh uh what's her name on the recorder like Diane. you don't need you don't need to know who she is. Or what she's doing, or why he needs to talk to her. Like you're falling in love with him. You're you're getting invested in him by his everyday stuff. Yeah, and it's normally something David Lynch is very good at. But to me, this movie felt like there was a disconnect to that. And I think yeah. part of the reason being is, and once again, this is only just spitballing. I have a feeling that David Lynch doesn't really like science fiction or maybe doesn't get it because he doesn't have a connection to it because the reason i described in my opening reading 
as the film as a sci-fi fantasy because to me this movie is not a straight sci-fi movie and in a lot of ways david lynch even said in an interview that this is not like a, a spaceship attacks type sci-fi movie no it's it's yeah. a big movie about mysticism and like when we first met the 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 house of trades and we are inside their castle and the, like the ship lap boards and everything it felt very much like a captain ship and the fact that there's yep. he he, he grounds it in this somewhat world of reality with these captain's clothing and this captain's ship and these dogs and almost in a world that we can understand and i was summarizing i was theorizing with josephine as i was texting her about this movie is one of david lynch's favorite movies is the, is the wizard of oz and there's a lot of Wizard of Oz in this movie, and I'm almost wondering if he was viewing Dune through the lens of as a fantasy film, as a way to ground it for him. Because if you just sure. look at the House Harkonnen and the way all that's set up and looks, they all look. It looks like the Emerald City. The people with their red head all look like the inhabitants of the Emerald City. Um, Paul Atreides feels very much like Dorothy. And I wouldn't be surprised if he was using like elements of fantasy films to kind of connect it to this world of sci-fi. I don't know for and sure. And he even had a small dog. Yeah. I don't know for sure, but this is me just summarizing, theorizing. I wanted so badly the the way the timing played out with the voiceover about um and and one would would go on to become this super being. I wanted so badly for it to be one of those dogs. <laughs> I suspected it wouldn't, but it was like showing him holding the dog as clearly like he is the one who's going to be coming. It's like, but it turns out it's just this little pug that is the ultimate super being. That would have been great, though. (laughs) So one thing before we talk a little bit more about Dune, one thing I I actually just didn't ask you, Nick, is what do you think of the movie? Oh, um, I I feel like I have an idea, but let's let's clarify it. I, I don't think we're we're being uh, super secretive about our feelings. Because um, you, this is the movie you wanted to watch. I did. I, I and I think, and I've done this on a couple films. I think I don't really have a good sense of what my reaction to the film was because it was so. The, the first half, I felt like I was trying to understand what the hell was happening yes, yes. with that dense exposition. And when I'm doing that, I'm not really enjoying appreciating or, or understanding at the level that I'd like to the film. So I don't think it's fair to say, well, I didn't like it because of the dense exposition. Yeah. Like, is that a barrier as you described it? Absolutely. Is it um, the way that I think was the best way to set up the film? No, absolutely not. But I don't think that it's, personally, it's fair in my opinion to say that I, you know, it was a quote bad movie or I didn't enjoy the movie because I was wrapped up in that that's not fair i'd like to watch it several more times i actually want to read the book too like i don't know like i'm, I'm weirdly invested in this world <laughs> um and then the back half um you know i i certainly you're able to get into it a little bit more but it <laughs> what i found interesting about the second half of the film is it felt like it it, it i thought of your description, the the Jim Jarmusch film that you reviewed recently, Limits of Control, where, 
yeah, where it's like it's showing you all the stuff in between the scenes that most films of that nature show. Mm-hmm. It was like it would show them like running through the desert talking about how a two year war started. It's like and then instead of showing any of that, then they cut. Yeah. <laughs> to like years later. Yeah. It's like isn't isn't that the part you wanna um show <laughs> i remember years ago kevin smith used to joke around be before he kind of had this renaissance of filmmaking where he's like i'm a lazy filmmaker he's like i don't know how to shoot so much so much stuff that he's like if i want to make like because originally they he, they wanted him to make a a green hornet movie he's like i wouldn't know how to sh- shoot any of that stuff it would be you know the green hornet and uh kato sitting against the car being like hey look there's crime over there and they'd walk off screen and come back and the crime would just be defeated and i was thinking about that while watching this movie and it's like not in in a not in a mean way towards kevin smith but it's like oh is this did kevin smith direct this this dude movie because it feels like the it feels like the direction style he used to joke about right. in terms of himself yeah. where i mean there, there is, is action it, and there's things going on but there's so many in Every scene, none of the scenes feel to flow into each other. There's not a really good yes. flow. They all feel very standalone. D- yeah, disparate. Like, you're like, okay, we're here now, and I understand that that's a group of people that they've kind of been referencing, but I'm not really sure why they're here, how we got from where they are to where they are now. And you spend so much, again, like, I spent so much mental energy trying to keep up that I don't think I really absorbed the film. Yeah. That, that I, I didn't go along for the journey. That being, I, 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 like when you're in class in high school and you're like just starting to understand the concept and they've already jumped to like, okay, now we're going to build on that. And here's the next part of it. And you're like, hold on, hold on, wait a minute. I'm just starting to understand what, you were even talking about in the first place like i felt like that through the entire it reminds me of a line from scrubs it was from the last season of scrubs like you know the scrubs med school season and dave franco (laughs) has this great line where uh their tutor is like okay everyone uh turn to chapter 37 he's like chapter which book and that's, and that's how I felt kind of watching Doom, Totally. Where it's like, wait, we're on chapter what? I didn't realize we were even opening a book yet. Like, um, but like I said, yeah, there was things that it did very well. Like, uh, absolutely, like to- yeah. so many of those effects. Like once we got to Dune, for me, it started picking up a little bit more. But yeah. like, I remember, like, I, I was watching it in. Uh, I, I had to break it up in the two sittings. I was watching it. Uh, I was finishing it one morning, and I was cheering to myself when Paul got to the top of that sandworm and was riding it. I was like, "Fuck yeah, Paul, ride that worm!" <laughs> I, I found that whole scene like, like I was laughing through it, and not because they were trying to like it was. <laughs> watching them trying, like, and then you get the thing in, and then you climb up on this giant thing and you walk across and then woo i'm right (laughs) and then like on top of that like toto's score in that part i was like damn i would not have thought the guys who wrote africa would have such a not only a good score but dynamic and interesting
I don't understand why they didn't just recycle Africa. Just because, over and over again? Yeah. <laughs> I miss the rains down on Dune. <laughs> it would work, actually. <laughs> right? So, like I guess... I miss the spice. <laughs> so, that's kind of how I feel, too. It's like, I'm endlessly fascinated by the film, and I wouldn't necessarily say I disliked it. I just don't know how much I liked it. Uh, but uh, oh, I I don't know whether or not I dislike what it. I f- I might, but I don't know. Yeah, yet. what I find really fascinating though is if I would have just watched this film without looking at the credits, I would have sworn on my life that David Lynch directed this, but someone else wrote it okay. because knowing the films that David Lynch made before Dune and the stuff that he did after, he's got a very unique style, very unique look. Um, and he's kind of, in a lot of ways, kind of an anti-filmmaker where, um, you know, cause he tells stories differently than everyone else to, and I would have sworn because of how this is actually one of David Lynch's less, less weird movies because it hits so many narrative beats. It follows a lot of the structure of similar science fiction films. And it was very much in its time as a blockbuster when it came out, sure. I would have assumed that someone else would have written it. David Lynch was a director for hire and just came in and David Lynched the film you know david lynchified the (laughs) film and added stuff to find that he's the sole writer i thought was very fascinating because for a filmmaker who is so unique and weird and got his start doing eraserhead the film it's it's it shows that he's got his finger on the pulse in terms of narrative structure of film and that he knows how to make these films because it feels like a I don't want to call it this, but kind of like a Star Wars ripoff in that way, where it hits a lot of those same beats. It's got a lot of similar action. And I was like, oh, I was very impressed to see that he wrote this. It makes it almost makes me wonder if he wasn't like trying to like, okay, now I'm going to be a bit more mainstream. And then upon its demise said, you know what, that doesn't work for me, that's not the kind of director I am, and then return yeah. to, like... Because, like, he was the... His weirdness. <laughs> yeah, what what found him success yeah. in the beginning. Yeah, and it's, like, in, in it's, it's uh, the reason that's so interesting to me is because he was trying to find... You know, it's it's a hard nut to crack because um, I think she, uh, in my text conversation of Josephine, she said it best, where... You know, Dune's been a movie that's been trying to be adapted for a long time, and it's hard to do because how do you how do you make it palpable for fans of Dune, and how do you make it a crowd success? And she had surmised that it's tough with with projects like this because if you have someone who it's their life goal to make a film like this, they can sometimes that's so much pressure that they don't do it well, and right. uh, you know. Or they're too close to it. Yeah. Like if you're passionate about something, it's you're then you're not e- able to you know to to coin the old uh, stereotype. Uh, you can't kill your darlings. Like if you love it all, <clears throat> you're not willing to let go of the stuff that would ultimately make it a better yeah uh, story. So it's it's a weird project for that reason, but it's also interesting to think. So David Lynch showed that he can make a or write and direct for all intents and purposes because this is probably the least David Lynch feeling film. Like there's some scenes and there's elements and there's stuff in there that like, oh, that's very David Lynch. Uh, but it, it shows that he can live in that world if he really wants to. But Those like uh, inner monologue, like where you are hearing people's one-off thoughts mm-hmm. throughout the whole thing felt very 
Lynchian. Some of his, um, some of the weirder stuff, like the, uh, uh, like the, the, all the shots of water, like the montages of that throughout, and then yeah. even the long crossfades across the desert. The 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 Harkonnen guy picking away at the scabs. Apparently, that was <laughs> that was that was a him choice. Be- okay. He wanted to he wanted to to find a visual reason for this guy to be, you know, creepy and, and evil. Um, but from what uh, it's kind of interesting to think that after Dune, so his his, his film career was Eraserhead, Elephant Man, which is actually nominated for eight Oscars. He Ooh. then did Dune, <laughs> which is kind of a weird three three film, you know, run. Right after this, after how how badly Dune did, he did Blue Velvet, and Blue <laughs> Velvet is probably considered one of his most successful, probably one of his most beloved films. Is the most, uh, which is still on my shame list. On on revisiting my shame list, I was amazed at how much David Lynch I had on, <laughs> on my shame list. Yeah, so you know, so Blue Velvet was kind of like his big. Hit the, hit the big thing that also the reason that he got to do Twin Peaks and that he had a big Fourth career. Fourth times after. the charm. Yeah. So it's like, it's to me, it's like Blue Velvet's even more, I know you haven't seen it yet, but Blue Velvet's even more interesting now seeing it that it was in response to Dune. Yeah. Okay. Because like even like. Plus it stars Ken Koopa. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um. So yeah, I was, I was thinking about that. And then like, cause a lot of people said like Brad Dourif said in an interview that is like he said he wishes people could have seen david lynch's original vision for dune some of the uh, special effects and so forth got very cheap they ran out of money and no in a lot of those cases he didn't get what he wanted and um they just didn't have the money for it um i mean there are descriptions in the screenplay uh folding space which are just gorgeous and i know he would have loved to have done and 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 uh you know had the film done been done a few years later he could have he could have had and they would have been gorgeous but i just feel like there was probably so many studio notes and so much stuff going on and the de laurentis company at the time was a you know they're a big company they were turning out a lot of popular films but it it reminds me even still a lot because dino de laurentis also um funded in the 90s uh army of darkness oh okay so it's like that's another film where it's like it's missing something i don't know it's, yeah. to, to, to think that their army of darkness and dune are kind of related in that way it's like i can see it that it was interesting because i was actually about to reference sam raimi in another way in that um when when you were talking about this more independent artisty filmmaker then being given this big project it, it reminded me of sam raimi uh being given the spider-man franchise mm-hmm. um and after his like uh kind of more much more independent uh film catalog up till that point and he and he did it really well and he found that not only can he live in that world but he's comfortable with it yeah um until spider-man 3 yeah <laughs> I don't know. I'm a, I'm a bit of a defender of Spider-Man Three. Are you? Yeah, I liked it. I, would... <laughs> I haven't rewatched it since it came out, but I remember liking it. <laughs> but um, yeah. So like, all these elements are what are what I think really truly fascinate me so much about Dune, um, because it is such a big world, and it's also interesting to see what what year did um, Next Generation come out? 
90? Cause, I think maybe 89. Because it was really interesting to see a, a young Patrick Stewart. Oh, my God. The And the, the te- this this film is truly like the who's who of, of sci-fi. Um, but, again, so much of it happened after. Uh, for, I was a little late. First episode aired in 1987. But still, this is, so this predates Star Trek Next Generation. Yeah. And it... You had... Uh, um, um, not Ziggy, but uh, from Quantum Leap. Uh, uh, God, the the name's escaping me. He talked to Ziggy, but he was like the the hologram that only he could see. I don't know. Did you see Quantum Leap? No. Okay. So I'm a little lost of what you're talking about. It's, okay, give me, give me two seconds. <laughs> I will find it. Uh... It's the guy that uh, double-crossed in order to kill Dean Stockwell. Ah, okay, okay. Plays Al in Quantum Leap. Okay, and he played um, uh, Yui or something in this, uh, Dr. Yui. Yeah. So it just so many, in from in my view, like these sci-fi icons. In, and they're like, oh! And then, and then that's so and so, and then that's, oh, that's so and so. What's great too, so not only was it a mixture of sci-fi icons, Plus Sting, which I'm still going to keep mentioning. Plus Sting. Um, I, I think he can safely be put as a sci-fi icon. Yeah, like, and he was really good in this movie. Uh, but not, not only did I love that it was a mixture of sci-fi icons, what looked to be renowned British actors, but then it was also became, started becoming a who's who of people that would eventually become someone important in Twin Peaks. So you had Kyle yeah, McLaughlin, yeah. you had Everett, Everett McGill, who played Stilgar. He was like the guy who, who took uh, Paul and his mother in on Dune. Like the that Paul eventually started leading. Oh yes, uh, yep. Jack Nance, who uh, was also in a Razorhead, he was in the movie. Um, so it's like, oh, this is kind of cool. It's like seeing all these interesting worlds kind of come together. And then Virginia Madsen was there for some reason. <laughs> um, also, the guy that played the the writer in in the Mouth of Madness that they were yes. that they were looking for. Uh, uh, um, I cannot played. Played Kyle McLaughlin's father, Jurgen Prochnow. In this, okay, Jurgen, Jurgen. <laughs> so Jurgen Prochnow is also yeah. So it's like it's there's so many like I, I, that was one thing I was noticing when I was watching the credits. It's like oh they are in a movie we watched in the Shameless Picture Show. They are yeah. in a movie we watched in the Shameless <laughs> Picture Show. Um, the only thing we're missing is you know little Eddie Munster. When are we gonna get him on the show? I haven't tried reaching out yet, but I need to. <laughs> So the the it's truly an incredible cast. Um, that that was another moment, though. Speaking of of Jean Luc, that I was totally lost on. So Kyle MacLachlan gets taken in by this you know indigenous tribe and becomes their powerful savior, and he's fighting this war. And all of a sudden, he like. They're in this little weird mini skirmish, and then John Luke shows up again. Um, <laughs> yes. He's like, "Oh, hey, it's you! Oh, yeah, how have you been? You're still alive. That's cool. Do you want to fight on the same side? Sure." And then they just start like, "It was like, oh, oh, wait a minute, what, I, I remember. <laughs> who are you fighting? Are you both fighting the same people? Or are you fighting you? like what is going on?" I know. And actually, uh, not only that, but speaking another confusing part with John with John Luke was near the beginning of the film. When he's first introduced, and I remember Amanda was originally watching. His ass. Yeah, Amanda was originally watching this movie with me, and she just got so tired that she could not focus. 
Um, but like their their little opening fight and and every like Kyle McLaughlin's acting's also stilted and he's just standing there really straight. He's like, I felt I heard you guys coming, and it's just like like none of it feels feels believable. And then he's like, Well, we have to practice. Well, I don't want to practice. And then they have like this weird fight with this like blocky armor on and then he starts shooting at stuff and like the guns only work by making sounds i'm like i was like what the fuck is happening it's like i don't know i'm working on it (laughs) i don't watch many movies of subtitles because like i um i've got a decent enough sound system that i don't ever need to in terms of like understanding and hearing what people are saying but i had to watch this movie with subtitles because there's so many made up weird names that i had had no idea what was happening (laughs) <laughs> i want to say after the first half hour i didn't need them anymore but i still kept them on just in case it gave you another point of reference to tie it back yep. to whatever it needs to be tied to. and then like just thinking about too like you know some of the some of the, the 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 interesting characters like the the navigators who they were talking about at the beginning those weird creature looking things that were brought into the emperor's palace who like the uh he was like in a giant oh yeah, yeah the yeah. navigators like uh, apparently they um they 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 they're in control of space travel right because they like you don't travel through space you're just like what is it's like more like a folded space yeah. concept they, where you'll just appear and the, on the other side of the galaxy yep, and they need they need they need spice for that so it's like there's just mm-hmm. all these interesting things um and then it's like you know, so they want Paul dead because he he could be this what uh, Quizat Hatterack is what they call okay. it. Um, and and that was like him being able to like tap into that between space where those mm-hmm. big maggots lived, right? Yep. And then like from what my understanding of it, so there is a sisterhood called the Bene Gesserit, and essentially what that Hatterack thingy is, if I'm understanding correctly, Dune fans out there, I'm sorry if I'm not getting this right. <laughs> I just had the movie to go off of. It's you know, it's it's essentially when you are the male version of that. So that's why it was such a big scandal that's when they had right, a son yeah. instead of a daughter. Yeah, and they kept saying like no man has survived the the trial or the mm-hmm. that. I must was that the box thing yes. where you put your yeah. hand, no man has ever like yeah. So it's like that's why it was such a big deal of them having a son instead of a daughter, and that's the reason they wanted Paul killed because he has a higher probability of becoming this godlike creature. I don't know. It's it's it be, it sounds to me like it gets very religious. <laughs> okay, I don't know. It's so the first one's all politics, the second one's all religion, and these are all the things that you want to bring up in in yeah. mixed company. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> So it's let's talk about but it. But yet weirdly <laughs> enough, so like there's supposed to be a new Dune movie coming out. Um Okay. I don't remember who's directing it at the moment. Let's see if I can find out. Okay. Um Dennis Villanueva, who also direct I think he directed that new Blade Runner that came out too. Apparently he's supposed to be directing okay. a new Dune. Um and I'm intrigued enough that I'll probably go see it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Because it's like, well, you know, Kent, maybe will he be able to crack this nut, right? Of Dune, to dream the impossible dream. But yeah, I don't know. Like I was, I was, I've, I've been thinking about this movie a lot. Not just because we just watched it, but because like I just can't figure this movie out. Yeah, and I, no, it is. I kind of like that. I kind of like that. There's still movies that challenge me. Yeah. Um something a, a quote 
that I found. Where is it? Give me a second. I, I was, I want to continue on a quote that I read you earlier when we were off screen. I do find it funny, though, that when back when Jodorowsky was going to make the film, he was going to cast um, Mick Jagger in the part of Fade, which was Sting's role. I just like that both versions, they have a rock star. In You're it. right. Sting. I know. Sting. <laughs> I'm coming to Sting. So, music, at least popular music, has never played a big part in my life, until the last few years for a very good reason. I didn't, I had never heard of Sting. <laughs> I mean, that's how isolated I was from the music world. But I was aware that there was, because I'd been there a couple of weeks before Sting arrived, and when he arrived, <gasps> there was this kind of frisson everywhere, you know, the whole of Mexico City was a buzz that Sting was coming. And um, so I heard he was a musician. That's all I knew. And, the, and so the second or third day, we're just hanging out on the set, and him and me, and I say, so you're a musician? And he said, yep. And I said, what do you play? <laughs> and I swear, I swear, I crossed my heart. And, and, and he said, bass. And I said, you know, I've often wondered, what is it like carrying that huge thing around you <laughs> everywhere you go? And, <laughs> All right. I so mean, much. God bless him. Sting said, um, uh, no, bass guitar. That's what I play. And I said, oh, ah, great. That's fantastic. Beautiful instrument. And you're like, are you a solo artist? And he said, no, 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 I'm in a band. And I said, oh, what kind of band? He said, the police. <laughs> Folks. <laughs> I said, you play in a police band. Oh. <laughs> oh. It's, good. it's good you took that guy down a notch. Okay, I found it. Okay. So earlier I read to you that... Um, uh, it's easier to say that Dune is a poor man's 2001 mm -hmm. made by Stanley Kubrick, a filmmaker Lynch deeply admires, mashed together with a poor man's Blade Runner, which Ridley Scott left Dune to direct and found far more manageable. Um, and, and the next line I think is interesting. It takes the spectacle and the pacing of both. Which I now Blade Runner I have not seen that's on my shame list we have to do an episode on it, uh, but I have seen 2001 and that checks out like it does have that Kubrick like pacing, um, comma but does not ascend to the mindfulness of either and therefore says nothing at all. So it's kind of uh, like I can see that 2001 like pulls off that kind of slow, long epic pacing because of how much it's able to say and. Dune doesn't have the the cognitive payoff yeah. that that does, and therefore that pacing doesn't work. Yeah, I feel like Dune the the movie, not the book, is skirting around things that it has to that it wants to say or it has right. to say or that it finds interesting, but it never quite fully commits to any of them. And I feel like Dune, with how dense it is, could make an interesting series or mini series. 
um, where you can truly give these thing these things time to breathe. Spend time with the Harkonnens, not that you really want to. Um, spend <laughs> time with the spice miners and find what they're about. Because that's another thing. I yeah. wanted to see more how this fucking spice mining operation worked. And right. I wanted more sandworms. <laughs> Watch Beetlejuice. There's not, there's even less sandworms in Beetlejuice. I, that's true. Um, you know, and going back to what you were saying about Kevin Smith, about the, the idea of like intentionally avoiding that part of the story i think i i think that can that can work and kevin smith does that really really well so long as you make what you are showing compelling mm-hmm. like it or and again i i did not see the uh jim jarmusch film that you were talking about um so i can't say whether or not they pulled it off but whatever you are showing you have to make it compelling, and it felt like this film, with both of those points that I just brought up, like it was skirting around the compelling story, but then didn't show you a compelling. Like they're like, "Yep, mm-hmm. trust me, all that stuff that I'm not showing you is really interesting." Yeah. All right. See you later. Like they they didn't, and, and that's. I, I'm being over dramatic in order no, to illustrate the point. I think there was a lot of interesting stuff in there, but um, it didn't dive down into the meat of that of that story. And then what they did show you wasn't didn't stand on its own as a compelling uh, film. Mm-hmm. I agree. <clears throat> I agree. And yeah, it's. I get. I'm trying to like think of what else to say about Dune. I know we're gonna we're probably gonna tack on a little bit here on the end, with with Josephine kind of giving her opinions on it because she has said that it's not only her it's her favorite non David Lynch David Lynch film, her <laughs> favorite sci fi film directed by a non sci fi director, and I think she even told me that she prefers it to the book. Yeah. So um, again. I, I might watch this four more times and then decide, oh, okay, now I'm st- now that I'm getting past all of the heavy, like, political stuff, now I'm really enjoying it. I, I see that as a very real possibility. I just need to get down past that in order to make that determination. I get that completely. Um, one thing, just to, to kind of throw some positivity its way, I read in another, uh, an Atlantic article written by Daniel Snyder, um, before his death in 1986, Herbert, the, the author of the novel, said that he was largely pleased with Lynch's film's representation of his universe. And you can understand why. While it's hardly a cohesive experience, individual scenes are brought to life with striking power. That's, that's good. So it's I, good to hear that the creator is happy with it. Right. Yeah. And and again, there is a lot of positive things to say. I think the acting was stellar, and with that, little cast, stilted, it's, it's no but wonder. it, it worked. But since everyone in the universe was, it felt like an intentional yeah. choice. I think the sets were gorgeous. Yeah, all the um, effects were amazing. Like their use of rear screen photography or rear screen projection, and how they actually did some of the special effects photography was interesting. Yeah. It was a sci-fi film that, in a lot of ways, did not feel like the traditional sci-fi film. Like, there were spaceships and there were things like that, but there was just such a unique look to so much of it. it, it I, I appreciated times like that where I said it felt more like a fantasy film in space. Yep. 
and I and I enjoyed the time that I spent in the world. I just wish I had a better sense of what was going on. Yeah, I I, I felt like I was. A, a dude in the room who was like looking up at the crown molding and going, that's really nice. While the people that actually knew what was going on were to, you know, while the big boys were talking and I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm the spear carrier and like, Oh boy, that's a really pretty room. <laughs> you are the dad in Beetlejuice. While all this stuff is going on, you're looking out the window being like, Oh, that, the school's got a bad roof. Good parking. <laughs> totally. <laughs> <laughs> trying to what was he painting like duck decoys or no, something? no he was bird watching <laughs> bird he watching came out okay. here, he came out there to relax <laughs> i'm not even supposed to be here today there we go bringing kevin smith back in bringing it up all back i i will say um so in the uh what have you been watching recently um uh category uh, with the whole coronavirus thing going on, Rain and I decided to watch uh, Contagion. I've never seen it. This weekend? Yes. Was um, this a bad idea? Uh, it was a fantastic idea. I feel really prepared okay. uh, for the upcoming uh, epidemic. And I know how many people are going to die. And, <laughs> and it's all horrifying. Um but it actually has a pretty robust cast. I've, I remember when it, it came out. I was excited to see it. I just never got around to it. It's it's Gwyneth Paltrow, Matt Damon, Lawrence Fishburne. Um, God damn it. I, I love her so much, and I can never remember her goddamn name. Um, Shannon Sosman. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> that's it? No. Um, Titanic. Kate Winslet? Yes, Kate Winslet. Jesus Christ. I she is fantastic and the name just I can never grab onto it. Um uh Jude Law at playing this like smarmy uh He does play smarter. He does play smarmy very well. Really well. Um and he has a British accent, but it's not his natural oh, British that's accent. Intriguing. It's, it, it's like I don't think it's Welsh, but it's like a lower class english i think and you know i'm far from an expert but i was able to pick up some subtleties to it that i appreciated um and it it's a i thought it was a good film that had an interesting lack of resolution okay that that felt very unlike they they find the vaccine spoilers they find the vaccine and they start rolling it out but even that is very stressful and the movie ends before that is really resolved. Um, Jude Law's character kind of gets in trouble, but he kind of doesn't. And that doesn't like, there's so much lack of resolution at the end that, um, especially when you watch it in the middle of what, you know, is this potential upcoming pandemic or, you know, whatever. Um, it, it was a, it was very unsettling in the best way. <laughs> My month has been super goofy. If we're going to talk a little bit about what we've been watching. One, yeah. I need to get two about the way that made it to my, my best of list. Uh, kind of universal monster movies retold. Think about it that way. Okay. One of them is called Bliss. Directed by a filmmaker named Joe Bigos. It's on Shudder currently. And it's about an artist 
who is struggling to get her newest painting done. Her her manager's getting down on her. She doesn't have enough money to pay her rent. She's a former drug addict and decides that she needs the inspiration, so she goes and gets a drug called Bliss that's going to help her 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 painting. What's fu- what I find funny about what not funny, but what I find interesting about the film is how a lot of the film you're kind of going back and forth with what, whether or not she's a drug addict or she's actually been turned into a vampire. Oh, interesting. And then what you find out is that it's kind of both. Okay. So it's it's a really interesting take on the vampire genre. And then I uh, I watched a movie called Depraved, which is by a filmmaker by Larry Fessenden. It's on Hulu currently, and it's a modern retelling of the story of Frankenstein. Okay. Set in Brooklyn. And it's it's a really interesting, introspective story about you know it, kind of like the themes i think frankenstein always has been is like just because you can doesn't does that mean you should sure i don't i can't see how anyone would want to take on the role of frankenstein's monster after peter boyle knocked it out of the park <laughs> in young frankenstein this guy does a pretty good job um, and then what's been so weird is i've been watching it's kind of in my so do you have disney plus Yes. So you know on Disney Plus if you go to the search option, you can then it'll give you then categories. Yep. Uh they have one that's Disney through the ages. It, I saw on Facebook you've been watching a lot of the old I've classic animations. I've watched which I a must admit bunch. I watched a little bit myself. I've watched <laughs> a bunch. Uh and they're all fantastic. Well not all of them, but you know, from a technical <laughs> standpoint they're fantastic. Yeah. Not all of them are extremely well made. And they're all a little racist. Just, just, there's there's a little bit of that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but what I find so fascinating about it is just um some of the short you know, we all know the Mickey, Goofy, Donald cartoons, whatever. But early on, when Mickey was pretty much their only big character, they had all these other shorts go they had all these other the these other films. Like they had uh the three little pigs. Or yep. they had a one called Flowers and Trees, which has actually won them an uh, Academy Award. You know, they had the Big Bad Wolf. They had Grasshopper and the Ants, the Goddess of Spring, which is a retelling of Persephone. Yep. Um, what I find interesting about all this, and I, I did some research. Apparently, um, uh, the 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 trees. I don't. I just said the name. The the trees and the wind. Um, it was the first ever Disney short to use three strip Technicolor. Oh, and okay. what I found interesting is they were using these really interesting animation techniques on the non-Mickey Mouse cartoons as experiments to get people to come see them. Because everyone sure. would come to the Mickey Mouse cartoons, but people weren't seeing their other stuff. So, like, the Mickey Mouse cartoons would still be in black and white, but they'd use these lush, lavish color film stocks for their non-Mickey Mouse cartoons to get people to go see them. Okay. And like the if you watch The Goddess in the Spring, you can see a lot of what they would later do in a couple of years on Snow White with how they animate people. And how, yeah. you know, like um, you know, cuz they've always had people and they've always been cartoony people, but Snow White was interesting because they had a lifelike looking person interacting with these cartoons. Right. And they were experimenting with that. So, because of this, uh, on Letterboxd, I uh, since I'm a Letterboxd Pro, I can I can keep track of my stats at all times. My most watched directors are Burt Gillette, who directed five of these Disney cartoons I've watched, and Wilford Jackson, who's directed four of them. <laughs> and then David Lynch is next at four. <laughs> nice. So I just love that, like... Oh, and then after that, it's Louis Luminet. Lu- uh, Lumine- uh, like, Luminet, bro. Lu- oh, can't say his name. 
uh, Luminae Brothers, who help invented film. <laughs> I watched two of their oh, shorts okay. on YouTube, so it's like it's a weird <laughs> combination of people. So yeah, I've been watching a lot of animation. Cool. So awesome. that was a very long explanation to say that I've been watching animation. <laughs> Before we leave for the day, I wanted to cut to a little bonus featurette here where i'm gonna have my friend josephine maria yanisak who was in oh, yanisak lachinsky sorry i didn't get her full name um <laughs> who was in the on the audition episode uh we are going to talk about dune she is in all intents and purposes kind of like the dune expert that i went to when i was getting information from this uh to get her opinions and then also while we are talking with her we are going to get we're going to pick her brain a little bit to figure out what is on her Shame. So I, I, I mentioned it, I want to say, a week ago when this stuff first started coming around. When Before we really knew what was happening, you know, we're all just trying to make ourselves feel better by using, by using levity. And I, I compared uh, the situation to an episode of Star Trek. And I feel like... Mm-hmm. As I've I've been kind of resorting to Star Trek because it's something I've not seen before. Uh, yeah, I've been I've been kind of going to that more and more just because it's something comforting. And I'm I'm realizing I feel like, and it kind of goes with what we're going to be talking about today a little bit. That I feel like more than ever, we need science fiction because yes. I feel like it helps us get out of our own brains a little bit when you can see realistically how bad something can be or even how good something can be i feel like it's something we really need right now to get us out of reality and um while people who you know because this is going to go at the end of our of our proper dune episode mm-hmm. um leaving dune i felt very unsure about how i felt but and so it was about a week ago that i recorded that episode and i'm still mm-hmm. thinking about the movie and <laughs> i i feel like there's there's something to that you know with everything going on yeah my brain keeps turning back to dune and turning to star trek and turning to these science fiction properties that are kind of helping me get through this yeah and that's been my whole goddamn life mike but uh <laughs> i think about that movie all the time I made Charlie watch it. Uh, I didn't make him. I asked him if he could watch it last night for uh, research. Yeah. And he said, and we're in the middle of the movie, and all these people are coming on screen, and these credits are rolling in the beginning. And he was like, that person's in this? Patrick Stewart is in this? Why don't people love this movie? And I was like, yeah, I don't, you know, I, I agree. And then we get ha- about, I, I'd say, a third of the way through, and he goes, this movie's great. Why don't we... You know, why, why, do, why do people pan this movie? What's wrong with it? What's wrong with them? Yeah. It was and, nice to hear. And that's actually what <laughs> I, was, I was surprised about, too. It's like I said, there are some things that didn't work for me. And, and, and we talked about it over text. A lot of it really mm-hmm. just comes down to the density of it. And, yes. the, and it's got a very weird narrative structure. Because, yes. like we talked about, David Lynch had an impossible task of, of, of adapting this, this rather dense book and doing it well because he wanted to be because he said in an interview he liked the book so he wanted to be faithful to it Mm -hmm. um so he had this kind of weird impossible task and but i've always heard people say it's like oh i love doom but i you know don't watch the movie i hate the movie or you know it's you know they i i'd always heard how bad supposedly this movie it was and while Mm -hmm. it didn't necessarily resonate with me in the way that i was hoping for i would never say this is a bad movie there's so much doing well there's so much is doing well that i feel like it's 
it's very easy to forgive the things that it's struggling with. Yes, I would agree. I, one comment I had from a guy I knew in college was that uh, when Paul Maudie gets up on that uh, sandworm for the first time and yeah. um, Toto starts playing, the guy was like, yeah, I just started laughing. That was too much. No, that was and like I, the I coolest moment. It was not only was it the coolest moment, but I don't know if we were watching the same movie because the entire movie is very histrionic. It's very dramatic and it's melodramatic. And that is the point. Yeah. And I don't know how you like if you laughed at that point, how did you not laugh at all the other many points where like Paul's father is saying, you know, the, the, the sleeper has to awaken, you know, like that's a ridiculous line, but it works so well because it's a melodramatic film. Yeah. And I, I feel like the only thing I can think of, and we live in a world of mm-hmm. snark. We live in a world where <laughs> even before memes were really a thing, we were trying to memeify things. And, and yes. you know, I think I'm going to get on my soapbox a little bit here. Um, we live in this world of people that are trying to find, tr- that are trying to make everything as so bad as good type experience. Mm-hmm. And I absolutely kind of hate that description of movies because yeah. you either like something you don't, don't give it a quantifying reason. Um, yeah. and only thing I can think of is they saw that scene and were like, well, this is, this is ridiculous. So let me just, they're looking for things to not like about it. Yes. There's, yes. there's a lot of goofy stilted dialogue. The, the, the fight scene between Paul and, uh, Patrick Stewart's character at the beginning with those, those, those blocky yes. uh, suits, it's all yes. ridiculous, but you either accept it or you don't. Because especially now, as I'm, I'm uh, as I've, I've said throughout the, sh- the start of the show, because actually our first episode of this podcast was about my co-host Nick getting me to watch Star Trek The Next Generation. So Star Trek, getting into it has kind of been the journey throughout this podcast. Mm-hmm. I don't know anything about this person who from, from college, but if there's so much ridiculousness in sci-fi, if they couldn't buy that, I don't think this, this genre is for them. That is, you know, I, it's interesting because this particular person, um, his name is TJ, by the way. He, uh, yeah, he was all into sci-fi, but he hated that movie. I don't know. I don't know what my deal is. I, I don't think deal I, is, but... I don't think I saw anything in this movie that was more ridiculous than anything I saw in a Star Wars movie. Agreed. That is the quote. That's your pull quote. Agreed. <laughs> um, yeah, and I'm looking at, so I, I you know, uh, Dune, the movie came out in 1984. Yeah. Um, it has three stars in IMDb. It has two Which, and a half stars on Rotten Tomatoes. You know that. Oh, you know, I was going to be like, being, I forgot it's IMDb. So I was like, oh, three stars out of five isn't bad. But then I was like, oh, wait, that's IMDb. That's very low. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Um, it, The movie, um, so it came out in 1985. And I do feel like a lot of people my age, because I was born in 1990. I'm a millennial. Everyone my age who saw it um, was getting it shown to them by someone older who hated the movie when it came out, probably, for whatever reason. So I feel like everyone's older brother or everyone's parent or somebody said, yeah, this movie's dumb, but like the book's good. So let's watch it or something like that. Like they came into it with a negative attitude. And for me, my mother, I I told you before um, when you were asking me questions, I have done a lot of critical work with Dune. Um, And part of it is because my mother loves that book. She's a, she's a huge science fiction fan. And when we watched the movie, it was family movie night. Like my mom got Chinese food, which on her salary was like a big deal in our house. So it was like a big treat. We got Chinese food. She lit some candles, put Dune on. And my two brothers and I, my mother, watched this movie. And it was like her sharing something she loves with us. So that was my introduction. I I do think it definitely colors my vision of the film. But it's a good movie, too. (laughs) Yeah. Like I said, the the biggest thing that has going against it, and this is just my personal opinion, is 
its density. Um, yes. I had a very similar uh, version. So um, earlier in the show, I want to say it was last season, we did an episode on Dark Crystal because mm-hmm. uh, it was a movie that I hadn't actually seen. It was a movie growing up I had see- I thought I had saw it because I saw bits and pieces of it. I realized I'd never seen it begin to end. And Dark Crystal had a, had a very similar um density to it where they kind of threw a lot at you and they kind mm-hmm. of just prayed that you could hold on for the ride and just went with it this is a movie definitely after i feel a couple more viewings it's going to really start to click um because they don't kind of ease you in in the way that say a star wars does or mm-hmm. even a star trek where they, they they introduce things slowly over time because they have such a big world they have to introduce you to like that, the princess at the very beginning filling you in that was kind of necessary just so you can get the plight of what's oh going on. Yeah, and I want to contextualize um, Arulan a little bit. I know we had talked about it, and yeah. I told you something incorrect in text too that I need to correct. But uh, um, the for when the FBI is looking at our texts. Yeah, of um, course. You know, there's probably a Dune <laughs> fan in F- who's at the FBI who's yes, really pissed off. This right is now. for you, Agent Whoever. Um, so the. So Arulan, so um, number one, I just want to give some context over Dune, the book itself, yes, um, and like where that book came from. So Frank Herbert wrote that, published it in 1965. I'm going to check that really quick before I say anything. Sounds um, right to me. So the official book was published in 1965. It was originally a serial. Um, he had published some books before that um, in like the 50s. It was a three-part serial uh, released in a magazine, and then a year later, he re-released it as this much slower, much more dense five-part book. Um, and then Dune was finally published in 1965, and it's in the form that most of us have read it in. And that book came from a an ecology a paper on ecology that he wrote um, years before, because he was living near the Oregon Dunes. And he was so impressed with the dunes and all the research being done at that time in that area on them. He made, he wrote a note to a friend that these dunes could swallow cities and make highways disappear, which is true. There's been a lot of research uh, recently, but also since the 50s on dunes, how they move, why they move. Um, there was a paper recently released that dunes talk. Um, they talk to each other in a sense. At the very least, we know that they react to each other. So the book really came out of this. Yes. So basically, like, like dunes don't crash into each other because they're following patterns that they're somehow is being communicated between them. Um, that doesn't mean that they're sentient and talking to each other, but it can mean, like, geolog- geologically things are happening that we don't mm. understand. But um, Frank Herbert was obsessed with this. He started writing a paper on it, abandoned the paper. It was never published. And then he wrote Dune. So really, this book comes out of a very ecological sense of um, writing for Herbert. And the book itself and the, where the movies have taken it, um, the various adaptations, is much more a family drama, a drama between houses. It's a um, patrician, you know, very kind of European household-based drama instead of this ecology base. And you see that shift in his various publications of it. But the idea of terraforming Arrakis, of covering it in water, that was the basis of his book. That was like the pearl that created all the rest of this. Um, and that was all to say, Rulin, the princess in the beginning, who I told Charlie when she came on, I was like, you have to watch this. This is the reason I'm gay. Um, <laughs> she is, you know, Virginia Madsen, gorgeous. Um, yeah, definitely. But she, you know, Candyman lead. She, uh, 
But the reason that she is narrating the beginning is because each chapter in Dune opens with an epigraph from a history she wrote, a diary she wrote, a, a book she wrote um, after the events of Dune. So um, after Dune, we know that she's going to go on to um, basically record the deeds of Muad'Dib. So the reason that we have so much information about him in theory as assumedly a reader who is living after the events of Dune is because she has written it down. So her narrating was a really smart choice because she is in effect narrating the book. Hmm. Um, it's not written in her voice, but there are these epigraphs that kind of put things in context. They also foreshadow what's about to happen because um, you know who Arulan is in theory. You don't meet her until the very last chapter of the book, like in person. Okay. Um, kind of like kind you of do like in the movie. In the movie. Yeah. yeah, you see her briefly when um, in the very first scene of, of David Lynch's Dune, when um, the space guild comes in and you see the, the navigator for the yeah, first time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She comes in and she's, she's wearing this gorgeous outfit. The costume design in Dune is always phenomenal. Um, but she walks in, she says, Father, what's going on? And he's like, get out of here. That is a good foreshadow, too, because she is in, immediately introduced in the first scene. And she is so important, but you don't know that till. Um, and actually, they never really show you that in this movie, which I'll talk about probably later. But she's important because she's a she's the narrator. And she does later marry Paul. Um, and sorry, I feel like I've been talking for a long time. But no, it's fine. This is all fantastic information. <laughs> this is why I wanted you on. Fantastic. I told you in text that um, there's a scene where he sits on the throne. Um, I think that that was conflated in my head from the 2000 sci-fi adaptation of Dune. Okay. Which is not good. It's confusing to me because a lot of Dune fans love that adaptation and I really disliked it. I find it less true to the book. Um, but didn't you? I thought it was terrible. Maybe I misheard your, misread your text. Yeah. Didn't you tell me that you pref almost in some ways prefer the movie to the book? Oh no, I um I do, but okay. the the 2000 sci-fi version was really bad. Okay. Um yeah, and I don't I don't think that it's so the ways that I, I should contextualize that. The ways that they changed it from the book were very very untrue to like the spirit of the book to me. Like they switch who's saying certain lines and they switch like um and and in doing what is said and when is so important. Like, you know, Ben, like the reed, the sleeper is awakened, like all those lines and these very ritualized linguistic things that are going on are so important to the story. And in the sci-fi 2000 uh, Dune, they keep changing and switching those around in really weird ways. Um, so to me, like hearing it, it was just I just like flinched every time. But um, I think in that one is the scene where Paul sits on the throne. But the but what happened in the last scene of Dune in the book is that um, he is uh going to marry Arulan, the daughter of the Padishah Emperor, to solidify their houses and make sure that the Padishah Emperor doesn't move against them, because if he does, he's gonna lose all spice production. Um so it's a she's a very important character because she's solidifying the houses, but also um she ends up writing about him. And you see that in Dune foreshadowed because she's all of a sudden writing about Muad'Dib in certain epigraphs and you kind of have this moment where you're like, wait, they don't even know each other. Why is she writing about him? Or you assume that he would have killed, you know, the whole, the Padishah's family because yeah. why wouldn't he? Um, Honestly, yeah. the more you describe this, the one, I feel like it's, there's, there's, there's definitely fans of Dune. Like I, even in high school, mm -hmm. I had, I had a couple of friends who were really big into the books, but I, I feel like we're kind of getting to this point of re, that. I feel like this should be rediscovered because the more you talk about it, it honestly, one feels like fantasy just in space. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it does, I it feel is. like David Lynch t- described it as, you know, um, he didn't want it. He didn't want when he was making it, he never saw it as, I think he called it like spaceship sci-fi where mm-hmm. it's, you know, just tech for the sake of tech. Because honestly, the, the as you describe this, I just keep thinking this sounds like Game of Thrones in space. And why aren't people obsessed with this the way they were obsessed with that? Yeah, I mean, we we do have we have a movie coming out. Yes, uh, well, I think it's Denny Villanueva is directing it. Yes, and we're gonna have um, Jason Momoa. Uh, I'm very excited. He's playing Duncan in Idaho, I believe. Which character was that again? Uh, he gets shot like right away, but oh, not okay. right away. He gets shot during the like her Conan takeover. Um, but he is more important in the book, and he's oh, like, I a remember very... this character now. Yeah, he's supposed to be like a very handsome person. It's exciting that Jason Momoa is playing him because the way he's described in the book is much closer to Jason Momoa. Um, he kind of looks like a nerd in the in the movie, <laughs> not in a bad way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't he just doesn't look like Jason yeah. Momoa. <laughs> yeah, but um, but yeah, it's exciting. I am. Yeah, I'm excited for that. But um, the I'm making sure that he's actually playing Duncan Idaho. I didn't. Just yeah, it is. I've got up. the I've got the cast. Okay, up. thank you. Yeah, I'm just like making up stuff. I'm like, yeah. And then Stellan Skarsgård is playing, uh, you know, the Panisher Emperor. Just kidding. He's playing Harkonnen. I know. I know that one. Um, the uh, what was I gonna say about? Yeah, uh, definitely. Um, I was telling Charlie last night that it is like, I said Lord of the Rings in space, but I would say it's much closer to Game of Thrones. Um, I mean, with, it is with the separate I, houses I, and everything. That's what made me think. Oh of it. yes, and I, I told you in text too. Um, the way that Herbert wrote this book, it is very, it feels like he plagiarized history. He just took like households and was like, oh, this European house is cool and put it in. Yeah. You know, like the Padishah um, line is very, very Habsburg. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that the houses are laid out. I think that Lynch really embraced that with like, um, and it, all the credit doesn't go to him, but the way he wrote it, but also all the set design um, I'm thinking about when they're on their way to Arrakis and you have all of these ships lining up almost like a carriage walk, like a caravan. Yeah, and then they're yeah. going into the great gate, into the giant, um, into the a, giant ship. That's that was a take fascinating, yeah. that was a great scene. Like I just, oh I, I loved the, the look and the scope of that scene. Oh, and it was, and it's so ornate and the ship design, but the fact that he, he makes everything sci-fi, but it's very much referencing old Europe. You yeah. know, it's very like, like the, ornate and beautiful. The uh, uh, the Atreides uh, castle was very yes. like it, was, it. It looked like a ship. It was made of wood. It had these. It had this really interesting quality that I feel like so many sci-fi films feel. Or feel sci-fi films, TV shows, what have you, all kind of mm-hmm. feel the same. I've never feel like I've seen a sci-fi movie that felt like this. I would agree. And I do think also, yeah, the architecture, the set design deserves like um, several awards that it probably didn't get. But uh, the uh, specifically the castle in Arrakis mm-hmm. with the very ornate um, uh, archways and everything like that. So I think I also told you that uh, Dune is very much based in Orientalism. It's yeah. a wildly Orientalizing in a very classic way uh, series. And it really parallels a lot of... Um, I told you Wadib is a Lawrence of Arabia character and I can see it. It parallels. Yeah. It parallels a lot of colonialism in like North Africa um, and other Arabic countries. And with the, um, with those in Muslim in particular, you see a lot of Muslim architecture with that, like the castle in Arrakis, you see Byzantine arches in the doorways. 
Yeah. And that was very much on purpose on Lynch, but I appreciate that he called back to that. Um, there are some other characters that he did not as well with, and he really amplified in a really problematic way. We'll get there um, like when we talk about Harkonnen. But his, um, his like design or, and his team's design of uh, Arrakis was very true to the book. And the book spends a long time describing a lot of places, but still very generalized. Like He describes a lot of materials. Mm-hmm. He describes certain rooms. And the ecology in Arrakis really comes through um, – in the way in ways that didn't come through in the movie because i honestly i don't think they would have fit like for instance when they first get to arrakis um lady jessica's there first and she's setting up everything and she finds out that there's this beautiful room full of plants that the the original um lady of the house had had put together and kept alive but this is taking an immense amount of water in addition to that they have these date palms lined up outside of the arakeen house and those take enough water to like feed like 200 people each or something like that. And so she's like, well, why don't we kill these trees? And the Arakeen are actually the ones who are like, no, you can't kill these trees. They're a symbol of your power and your house. Um, you, you know, you can't do it. You can't get rid of them. It's too important a symbol, even though it's wasting water. Then there are several scenes about passing out water and like um, how they are charging for passing out water. And yeah, there was a or, lot of water conversation in the movie. I've noticed. Yes. And a lot of imagery <laughs> for water, too. Yes. Um, and that, and so and that's great, but like the book really hammers into the ecology and also the privilege of ecology, the privilege of being able to think about, okay, I have a bunch of water. This is a waste of water. Let's end this, but how it becomes politically more complicated to do that, which is very true to how ecology works nowadays, especially in dry areas. I think about Las Vegas, like Las okay. Vegas should not exist. Yeah. And it is full of swimming pools and fountains and it is in the middle of a desert. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of parallels there. So one thing that I that I found fascinating about this, and we I, I was trying to find the right words for for it when we were mm-hmm. talking off um, off mic about it, was the sheer I guess how impressed I was by the fact that David Lynch wrote this screenplay because I think mm-hmm. I described it to you as it feeling like if if someone would have told me that someone else wrote the screenplay and David Lynch came in and just added his touch to it I wouldn't mm-hmm. have been surprised because uh, based on all the David Lynch stuff I've seen this does not feel like the type of film he would write because it feels so uh, what's the word I'm looking for um now I don't want to say unique cuz all of his stuff is unique but mm-hmm. it's 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 a blockbuster Yes, yeah. it, he's got. He has the the world of Dune to base it off of, but in terms of structure and the way some of the, a lot of the scenes play out, it's played out like a science fiction blockbuster, which is not a you know considering David Lynch's attachment to film and how why he got into it. He, he's an artist who decided to use film as a medium. It did not seem like yeah. the fil- type of film that he would write. Um, and having not read the book, I'm really fascinated by because you told me a little bit of it, and since I don't want to keep you all all morning. Um, about what what David Lynch's unique stamp is, like what what mm-hmm. he decided to add from the book, and what even the person who's read the book and who seems to be really into Dune, what you think that David Lynch might have done better than Frank mm-hmm. Herbert? Yeah, it's a um, weighted that's, question. That's I great. know. No, no, no. That's that's great. I love it. Um, I will say David Lynch, I think, was uniquely um, qualified to do this, but because of later projects. So Twin Peaks, um, this movie has uh, Everett McGill, yeah. who's in Twin Peaks, um, is, and uh, uh, Jack, Jack, Nance. Jack Nance. Yep. Uh, the only Harkonnen with feelings. Um, 
you can see in a lot of the scenes he's like reacting to what Harkonnen is doing. And he's like, ooh. Uh. <laughs> yeah. But um, he is a. Uh, so David uh, Twin Peaks was very, very, very character driven, and it is about a group of people that you have to follow very closely and have to be very well defined. Um, and you can see Lynch being able to handle that before Twin Peaks in Dune, and that is Dune is is also a very character driven story. Um, some things I think Lynch added that were good were the look and feel of the film. Um, the Harkonnen house is like worth a set, a, just a podcast episode on its own. But um, <laughs> they are sadists. They are dark. They are gross. Lynch, the way that um, Herbert describes them is very classic Europe, like very Iron Maiden type stuff, I would say. The way Lynch does it really brings it forward in technology and more prevalent. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, leather and, um, you know, like, you see, unfortunately, you see a lot of harnesses, mm-hmm. um, and that added an interesting look to the film. But really, what uh, Lynch is playing off of are some very harmful stereotypes of gay people, especially as evil uh, entities. Mm. The I was wondering that, but I, I, yes. I guess I, di- I didn't have enough knowledge to really vocalize it. But mm-hmm. the the thought of that had come to mind. Yeah, and that so like for instance, Harkonnen is gay. The the Duke Harkonnen, mm-hmm. the Baron Harkonnen. It's I, subtle, I but it's well, maybe not so subtle. It's, but it's yeah, it's not very. It's uh, it's it's absolutely canon. Like in the um, mm-hmm. in the series and Dune, the books and the first book of Dune, it is very clear. Okay. Um, Lynch really plays it up, and it doesn't. Um, you for instance, you see him kill that young, that attractive young person by pulling out their blood plug and then like assaulting them. Yeah. Um, over the flowers. That was definitely very obvious. And it's, you know, and, and, you know, Harkonnen is evil and he is gay. And that is those two things can exist. But the way that Lynch really hammers the fact that he's, you know, maybe evil because he's gay or gay because he's evil is um, has to do with his face, facial, uh, you know, pustules, I yeah, guess. Good word. Thank you. Uh, I'm a writer. <laughs> but uh, he, uh so Lynch was pulling that directly from the AIDS crisis that was happening. Yeah. Um, he was definitely referencing it. And the AIDS crisis overwhelmingly affected gay communities. And he, it was kind of an, it was a really unnecessary kind of um, parallel, especially in that character. I mean, Harkonnen is evil. His first name is Vladimir. Uh, as in, you know, Vlad the Impaler. Yeah. Like it is very obvious, but he is making this connection between the gay community and this tragedy that's happening in the gay community and um, in a very, like, stereotypical way. And I don't think that, you know, David Lynch is anti-gay in any way or anti that community. But I think that these are easy things for a general audience, an audience of a blockbuster, already has set up. Like, we know as audiences of mainstream movies that gay people are evil. Um, we know that the AIDS crisis in the 80s, that was something that, um, to our communities, was something that they earned because they're sinful or something like that. Like, those are kind of assumptions that a lot of audiences were coming into this film with, and David Lynch definitely plays on them and uses them um, in ways that Herbert would never have. Granted, he was writing before the AIDS crisis, but... um, So that was in itself pretty problematic. Um, But yeah, then there are other things that I really enjoyed. Like, he gives... uh, Lynch gives a lot more screen time to some of the women than they get in the book. But that being said, the book really... It has some very powerful moments for women, but there is a a moment at the end of the book, and this is actually um, 
something that I opened a paper with. So I, I think one of the reasons why you had me on is because I know Dune very well. Yeah. And part of that is because I am doing a, I'm being published in an anthology on relationships uh, in science fiction put out by um, this press out of Scotland called Luna Press. Um, Ties That Bind is coming out later this year. But I opened the essay talking about the last line of Dune, and it has to do with the wives. And in the end, Arulin is going to marry Paul, and Chani, his um, con- de facto concubine right now, is really pissed about it. And Jessica says to her, don't worry, they're going to remember us as wives. Hmm. So it's like this very powerful moment where, and Lynch removes that. He removes all this, like, even by removing the marriage to Arulin, he really empowers Chani as his partner. Yeah. Um, and Herbert did not do that. Herbert was very much like, yeah, it's cool. We're a concubinal system. It's fine. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I guess I don't really know what to add on to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. That was a lot of information. I know way too much about this. Uh, no, no. That's why I wanted series. you on because, like, one thing that me and me and Nick kind of talked about when we were doing the episode proper was mm-hmm. not knowing a whole lot about it. Because you know, one thing that I – it's the whole – point of this podcast is to you know not suffer any fools and not pretend like we are more in the know about things than than we (laughs) realistically are it's just a movie that it's almost like i wasn't wasn't prepared to open up such a big can of worms and i don't mean that in a bad way because it sometimes can where you know this was we just knew it was a big popular science fiction movie that some people Mm -hmm. loved some people hated that we had not seen that was on our list of things to see and um, I, I guess I don't know what I was expecting, but mm-hmm. I feel like the Dune that I got was so far removed from the Dune that I was expecting it to be that I find it far more fascinating than I was expecting to. I, I really thought it was going to be a movie that I was probably going to enjoy watching um, and have no thought of whatsoever but now i'm at this point where like i want to track down a copy of dune i want to read it i want i'm i'm looking forward to the new adaptation because i'm curious what yes. what he'll do with it and it's kind of those things that we were talking about um, on over text like is it going to be one of those situations where you know it, his desire to make this film is going to be a detriment to him or if he's the right person to do it yeah and that's um another thing that i kind of talked about when we were discussing um, why people hated this film is that I think that Dune as a, as a piece of literature is impossible to um, adapt. I mean, really can you adapt any book? Like there's an argument there, but um, the scope of it, the scale, how it's read, Herbert is very detailed in some ways, but he's very sparse in a lot of other ways. Like um, while he lays out motivations he doesn't lay out a whole lot of interior life if it's not about Paul Maudit. So like Arulin, um, her motivations are kind of laid out by her house, by her father, but you don't know a whole lot about her personal character. Yeah. And because of that, a lot of the films and a lot of the adaptations have really played up specific characters. And it's really an interpretation of that person's reading of that character. And that's fine. But it's, um, it's really, you know, he, Lynch was really given an impossible task and there's no way that anyone is going to like, you know, or everyone rather is going to like every version of Dune because people, and it means so many different things to so many different people. Cause even like we were talking about before, there's the ecology versus family drama, um, household drama aspects of it. Those are very different. The gender dynamics in that 
series are fascinating. They're extremely problematic, but just fascinating in themselves. Are you going to focus on um, the fact that these women are doing their duty and also suffering because of that? That's a huge part of Dune. And we don't, you know, there hasn't been an adaptation that really deals with that yet. So I really think that there's no, there's never going to be a version that everyone's going to be happy with. Um, yeah. And it's going to incite some extreme reactions in people because it is such a beloved work Yeah, in so many ways. And I think that's what I'm, because growing up, I think I've talked about this on the show and I might've even talked to you about it. Mm-hmm. Growing up, I was never a huge fan of sci-fi um, because mm-hmm. I, I had it in my mind that all science fiction was the the a lot of the, the the goofy science fiction we got in the 50s you know with i call it lab coat porn for lack of a better mm-hmm. term when it's just, mm-hmm. it's just white dudes in lab coats explaining stuff in in science labs and then they end up creating some giant creature or something i just figured all science fiction was like that and i just did not mm-hmm. have any interest in it so science fiction is something i started getting into relatively late in life i want to say late high school early college and mm-hmm. um you know i i did i never counted star wars as a kid just because that was I, I always took that as something different but mm-hmm. then I'm, I'm learning as as time goes on especially with these sci- science fiction franchises like dune or star trek or star wars and i'm sure there's other ones just those are the big three that i can think of they mm-hmm. all have their very large world and mm-hmm. You know, let's use Star Wars as an example. Um, there's we we have there's a lot of different Star Wars content out there now, uh, especially with the new movies. You have the you know the three Skywalker films and then the couple offshoot films. They all kind of have their own stories they're focusing on, but I feel like I, in in the case of Star Wars. They're all kind. Con- everyone, everyone who wants to make a Star Wars film is kind of focusing on the same voice, the same mm-hmm. themes. Whereas, mm-hmm. as I'm getting into Star Trek, I find myself liking the world of Star Trek because it feels much more open. I I, I like that. You know, we're getting dynamics of we're getting the dynamic of the ship structure. Where it's we are mm-hmm. we're getting. There's episodes where we can learn a lot about these interesting planets, but then other times we're just learning about how the structure inside the ship works and all these mm-hmm. other things that, you know, depending on who's writing it, whether it be Richard Matheson writing an episode or or Gene Roddenberry himself, they all kind of have their own different focuses. And I guess that's what, what you're a long way of say, me is saying that I agree with you, that I'm really excited to see what Denny Villanueva ends up doing with this because there were so many things i feel like there's so many different things that david lynch was found interesting that he was trying to add all these different elements because he didn't know really what the main focus of it should be because there was these this family these family dynamics that i thought was interesting and then there were Mm -hmm. you know was just paul's life and between the 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 relationship between him his mother and his father and -hmm. then there was just the world of dune itself like i honestly you know, I feel like it would have been a very David Lynch thing to do. I would have loved to have seen more of the spice mining, honestly. <laughs> like, I thought yeah, that well, could have been Yeah, well, and that's where he has his cameo, too. Yeah. Um, he's the guy who's, like, uh, on the radio with them. But, um, yeah, that I, I agree. I think, that w- I think it would have been very easy for him to fall into that hole, too. But he was really trying to focus on, um, you know, the, the themes of betrayal between houses and mm-hmm. and uh, battle and long, long held um, battles and things like that. The other thing with Dune and David Lynch's adaptation is there's a real conversation over whether you buy into the extreme Orientalism and Paul as like this very white savior um, and whether just because you want to get the story out 
or whether you question that. I'm interested to see if the new series is going to question that in any way, especially because it is um, casting a lot more people of color, a lot of people from different backgrounds mm-hmm. um, than any of the other adaptations ever have. And I think that um, Lynch, to tell his story, to tell the story of Paul, but also this grand family household drama, he really just bought into all the more problematic themes like that, you know, Orientalism is a fact. Paul, Paul is a savior. That is a fact. Um, in ways that Herbert did for the first book, but in subsequent books, Paul, um, so Paul's a messiah figure. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty clear. But he, um, in later books, really questions whether he should have, uh, you know, went that route. In yeah. later books, he has moments where he's like, wow, this was like maybe a bad decision. And his kids are messed up. Like, you know, I mean, being the son of a savior, daughter of a savior is very complicated mm-hmm. uh you know so and you know there's some evolutions that herbert did there and he only wrote three of the books i'm pretty certain his son wrote the other ones um but there are some evolutions there that are missing from a lot of the adaptations just because it's not about those you know books well again sci-fi did make follow-up series to dune i think they did children of dune i'm not sure if they did dune messiah but they did a couple other ones um but i don't think that they i think a lot of these creators found themselves just following with the first, the the series of Dune as it appears in the first book. And that's interesting because Herbert really had an evolution throughout that series. Yeah. Uh, One one of the last things I wanted to ask you, Mm -hmm. and I was also going to see if there's anything else you want to just talk about with Dune. Um, But one of the things that I wanted to ask you is, so we we were talking about Dune is different things to many people. We all, I Mm -hmm. think everyone who's a fan of it has the thing that, that that's, attaching them to the franchise if you had the capability to say make your own film or have mm-hmm. control over this new one that's coming what's what about it would you want to see oh, like what attracts would... you to do great question um what attracts me to it is 100 percent so my mom was in love with it that's like i that's colored so much of my science fiction tastes um but i i so dune is very much about duty it's about doing your duty um, and so many families are like Paul's entire, um, drive against the empire while he's supposedly helping out the Fremen. He really is trying to avenge his father. Um, that's the whole thing. It's a very personal vendetta. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk more about some of those, what's kind of considered the minor characters and their roles, because while Paul is certainly a focal point, everyone around him is doing specific things to either help him or hinder him. And they're much more interesting to me. Like Lady Jessica is fascinating. She went against her order. Mm-hmm. Um, there's yeah, I wanted you know, more of her character. Oh my god! And I think we, I think I sent you that fact about Glenn Close. That like Glenn Close was offered Lady yeah. Jessica, and she. Uh, there's a scene where I think it was taken out of the movie, but there's a scene where everyone's charging and Lady Jessica like faints, and Glenn Close was like, "I'm not playing this," yeah. um, which hell yeah, Glenn Close, but. Um, and the, the depiction of Lady Jessica in the film is awesome and strong and very complicated, but Jessica, Chani, there are so many scenes that were cut from this adaptation, other adaptations of women who are just taking on their roles and either playing with them or really, um, really buying into them and then getting what they need afterward. And I think that that is a theme throughout European history that we don't talk about enough. Um, the fact that, you know, queens were running things, women under uh, noble women, as much as we have these romantic stories where they were like, oh yeah, I don't want to marry that guy. He's gross. 
so many noble women did it because they understood this was the best thing for their family and the house was important and that is such a complicated relationship and it appears in Dune and we don't talk about it. Jessica accepts not being a wife so that Duke Atreides can, in theory, marry one of the Padishah Emperor's daughters, which Paul achieves for him. But it's such like there are so many side characters I would rather be focusing on and almost have Paul come in, you know, on I, I, in like the big scenes to to give a speech or something and then go back to a side character. That's the adaptation I would do. Honestly, it, it reminds me of like a, 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 a weird combination of like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Yes. Yes. With like Fury Road. Yes. Where like your lead character Sorry. is there, but they're not driving the story. Yes. I want yeah, to see, now. I want to see the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead of Dune. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, I think I think uh, I, I I'm not as close to it yet where I could really say like, for example, with Star Wars, I could tell you what I think I would want to see in a Star Wars mm-hmm. film that I think everyone is doing wrong, but I'm not as connected to Dune yet. Where I I'm sorry, that was Vinny. He just woke up. He just woke up <laughs> from something. Good morning, um, Vinny. Um. I'm not as connected to it where I could really give an idea of what I'd want to see, but I guess the biggest thing I'd like to see this new Dune film avoid is I would love if it took a chapter out of David Lynch's book in that I don't want this to look and feel like so many other sci-fi films. I yes. feel like there's sci-fi before, you know, Alien and Blade Runner and Star Wars, and then there's sci-fi after it. And mm-hmm. I feel like so many of them kind of go back to, you know, the look and feel of, like I said, you know, Blade Runner, Alien, and, and Star Wars because that's what they like. That's what they grew up liking. And like I said, David Lynch made a sci-fi film that didn't feel like a sci-fi film. It felt more like a fantasy film. It felt more like Wizard of Oz in space than it did a science fiction film in in the way that we've been, that we've seen it. No other science fiction blockbuster that I can think of in this very moment looked like and felt like this. Yeah, um, I agree. And I am excited that they are. um, I'm excited that they are bringing on different people to portray the various characters in Dune. I don't believe that Denis Villeneuve is going to. I don't really pronounce French very well. I don't know if I'm even saying his name correctly, Uh, but, you know, I'm trying. uh, Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Me too. Um, I don't know that he is going to, frankly, do anything wildly different. Um, he might. I mean, and wildly different in a way that I would want to see. Like, I really want to see a different voice on Dune. I want to see it directed by, a, always, a queer director, a queer director of color, um, you know, a woman. Like, and we're not going to get that Dune uh, for a long time, unfortunately. But they are bringing in various people to help with the film and to be in the film that are very different than what we've seen before. And that's great. Um, but I think that if we don't get a Dune that's similar to previous Dunes, we're definitely going to get a Dune that is very much in line with like the current generation of Star Wars films or the current, you know, I think it's going to follow the trends. Yeah. Um, and that's fine. But I really just was hoping for something wildly different because I think that Dune as a book, and in theory, you know, Dune is written by a white guy who is very problematic. We can, we can adapt a different story. But I think Dune has a lot of things to say. I think there's something to be said of reclaiming a story that it has been as long lasting as Dune to talk about, you know, the Orientalism, the extreme. Um, well, it's not like what Lynch showed. There is some homophobia in it. There's, mm-hmm. you know, it's um, it's a complicated book. The very misogynistic points in the book as well. 
like there are ways to I think update those or at least talk about them like display them in all their horrors for what they are mm-hmm. you know no I think that's I think that's very well stated and um, I guess before we we end the day because I st- still have to go to work and you know deal with yeah. all these all this insanity. Was there anything else that you you want to say about Dune, whether it be David Lynch's movie, the book, or just something that's burning inside of you that you feel like people need to see, or even just a different perspective to the movie? Um, I don't. I mean, I don't think so. I feel like I could just talk about Dune for days and days and days. I want to see the Ben Gesserit finally explored to the extent that they need to be, um, because the Ben Gesserit, as much as the Padishah Emperor is super important, you know, House Atreides versus House Harkonnen blah, blah, blah. The Ben Gesserit are straight up defining all of the houses and what their makeups are. They have a, a frankly, a eugenics program mm-hmm. um, where they choo- pick and choose who is, you know, having children with whom. And they're doing that through various means. Je- like Lady Jessica, as they state in the David Lynch film and is true in the book, um, is supposed to have had a daughter so that she could be married to Fade Rotha, the uh, played by Sting in David Lynch's Dune. And she chooses not to do that. Mm-hmm. And she eventually does have a daughter, but um, Aaliyah, Aaliyah is not, um, you know, doesn't marry Fedrotha, obviously, because yeah. he gets killed. But um, spoiler alert. <laughs> but the that like group of people, that group of women, are so powerful and so important. And Paul, in theory, is like overturning a lot of their evilness in their programs. But their order is so important and so complicated. Um, even the uh, the doctor, so Doctor Yua, the guy who sells everyone out. Yeah. His wife Wana, who he talks about, um, and kind of ha- only half lies to Lady Jessica about. She is a Ben Gesserit. Hmm. So like, freaking everyone's married to a Ben Gesserit. Princess Arulin is trained by the Ben Gesserit. She um, she may have become if she hadn't married Paul. There's a possibility that she would have become the um, the uh, what is the name for that. The role, the leader of the Ben Gesserits. The, uh, um, was it? Uh, no, the Quidditch Hatterach. Hatterach. Yeah. yeah, no, that's that's Paul. That's that's the man okay. who was able to go where no woman can, and that's another thing. You know, that's a whole other topic. <laughs> yeah, that was whatever. Uh, it, yeah, that's that was uh, an in- interesting inclusion. Gender dynamics are serious in Dune, and they are weird. They are traditional. That book was definitely written in the '60s, but um, <laughs> but uh, I think he started researching and writing it like in the late '50s. So like you know that's there, but um, yeah, yeah, fair enough. It is, uh, yeah, but it is very like the Benjamins are, are fascinating, and they don't get enough like screen time, frankly. Aside from you just have like this big bad, the big bad you know lady who comes and tests Paul, and then you have you know, sort of some references to them, but you don't really get the sense that they are, they are the architects of this universe yeah, in so many ways. I got the feeling, like, I could tell that they are important, but I feel like mm-hmm. no one was quite able to tell me why. Oh, yeah, no, they they are the ones who planned freaking everything. Like, all, and the reason that all this stuff comes to a head, um, and there's, there's very much a sense that, like, so the Harkonnen and um, Atreides feud has been going for a very long time. And that's clear, I think, in the film. They don't really talk about it, but you can tell they hate each other. You don't really know why, but they hate each other. Um, I think that's a, that's very much a sense of you know the European houses. It's like, yeah, we hate each other. It's just always been that way. Um, in the book, the way that the Ben Gesserit lay out things, they there's very much a sense that they let that feud happen for a certain amount of time. And Paul, had he been a girl, and um, Fade Rotha were supposed to end that feud. 
when hmm. the Ben Gesserit determined it would be the best moment to do it. So it's like there's, you know, they are thinking long term. They are seeing way into the future and they are planning. Yeah. So, you know, they're fascinating. <laughs> we need to see more about them. Yeah, I want that. That was definitely a, a a character group that I wanted more of myself. Yes. Um, so the last thing I'm going to ask of you before yes. um, you we, we head out for the day. So on. Yep. The Shameless Picture Show. We do we we this last season because we've been doing this for four years now. Uh, we added a new section to the show where we ask people we like, fil- fellow film fans, uh, people we we find interesting about what we we uh, we ask them what is on their respective shame lists, and you know <laughs> so that way we can kind of help keep this show going and. Um, so I wanted to, to get a, if, off the top of your head, if there's a movie or two that's on your own respective shameless that you feel like you, you had to see. Yeah, sure. Like, uh, that, like, I think that you should have seen or that I have not that seen. You, that is on have. your shameless. Something that you've missed. That's something that you haven't oh seen. Oh my God. There are so many. Well, give me like oh one God. or two. I've never seen Die Hard. Okay. Believe it or not. I don't think I have either. I know I've seen some of like wow. the big seat. Because when it's been yeah on, the big C- yeah I've yeah it's been scenes. on TV yeah. so much as a yeah, kid that sure. I've seen bits and pieces of it, but I don't think I ever sat down and pressed play on Die Hard and watched it all the way through. I am. Um, I also have not seen Gremlins, which I wrote um, around Christmas. I did a, a performance piece on at the Logan Theater in Chicago, and I just reprised that piece um, last week actually at the Logan Theater again. Um, where I had men on Tinder mansplain gremlins to me. Um, that was pretty funny. But because I hadn't seen it, I still have not seen it. And it's on my list, but I just have never, I, I don't know. I, I like absolutely I love gremlins. I actually have a I gremlins know. tattoo on my leg. I have, I feel like I have pretended, I pretended like I, I've seen that movie for a very long time. And then I just never actually saw it. Uh, and I need to sit down and watch it. But, you know, as you know, there are so many movies. Yeah. And, and, if you, uh, and sometimes you feel like the more someone recommends something, the lower it goes on your list. Because <laughs> yeah. you know, like, there's just other things like, like you know, like just Die Hard example. Yeah. It's not that I, yeah. I'm refusing to watch Die Hard. That's not the case. Right. But it's like if I have the choice to watch Die Hard or – to watch this, this you know, this weird exploitation film that's never gotten a release before. I'm probably right. going to choose that. Yeah, same. And I think that um, there is, like, I have such a question when I watch movies. Like, what is this going to add to my life? Like, it's something fun? Okay. But, like, is it something fun that I've been wanting to watch? Then I'll watch it. But, like, if it's the choice between that and, yeah, like a Criterion release or, you know, a new Sai Ming Ling movie that came out, I'm going to watch that. Um, I'm not going to necessarily take the time to watch this film everyone's seen before. So, yeah, like if yeah, I get, if I get know, a chance to someday. see it in a theater the or something, I think that would be the best way to see it as opposed to just like, well, I got nothing else to do. Let's just watch Die Hard. I feel exactly. like, like I, that's the way I wanted to see The Godfather was just see it in a theater, but I know that's not as easy to come by as, uh, as I yes. like. Um, but weirdly enough, I think you would actually, and I could be wrong with this, I yeah. feel like you would like Gremlins 2 far more with the with the female gremlins amanda and tinder reference that to me well, so that's, that's a good that's a good rack i don't think that's the reason why i just because <laughs> so when gremlins was so popular and they wanted joe dante to make a sequel and he had no interest yeah he just didn't want to do yeah. it and mm-hmm. they kept every year they asked him hey you want to do a sequel to gremlins now and he's like eh. and eventually i want to say it was like five to six years later which is a long time for a sequel especially in a time yeah. when they weren't doing sequels he's like they're like, can you please do us a sequel to Gremlins? And he's finally like, you know what? Sure. 
Uh, but he said, I want full creative control. And he he spoofed his own film. Wow. He went All and right. it's, it's a very just, for lack of a term, very punk rock sequel because, you know, he's spoofing the popularity of Gremlins um, and the fact that people didn't get that it was supposed to be a comedy. So he really amped up the comedy. Uh, that's funny. And, um, and he spoofs scenes from his own movie. Um, mm-hmm. Like he recreates them. Uh, it's also got Christopher Lee in a really goofy role too. And it's, um, I, I knew it's, it's, I also love too that. So, um, Leonard Malton really did not mm-hmm. like gremlins, mm-hmm. but he's friends with the director. So the director right. said, well, I'd like you to come and do the movie. And I, I want, I want the gremlins to attack you on, on a, on a, um, television program where you're reading your the review you wrote for gremlins verbatim and then they come and attack you (laughs) so it's like he's just having fun with his own property and i feel i feel Mm -hmm. like just because of how loud and audacious audacious it is i think Mm -hmm. you'd really appreciate gremlins too i like that yeah i'll check it out for sure all right perfect for sure i mean you know it's on my list (laughs) yeah you'll get to it when you get to it that's how what I tell people. It's like, oh, have you watched this yet? It's like, no, but I'll get to it when I get to it. It's like everyone's been asking me, have you watched The Witcher yet? It's like, eh, maybe I will. I'll, I'll get to it. Yeah, for sure. I don't know. It, it's probably the 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 pretentious film nerd in me, but like, I, I, I'd like to get to some of this stuff before everyone and their mother recommends it to me. Yeah, no, I... Uh, but I usually the stuff sure. that's getting recommended to me, it's not that I, I think it's going to be bad. It's just not... It's not what's grabbing me in that moment. Like... The Witcher just, I'm sure it's fine. I just mm-hmm. don't care. <laughs> yeah, no, I, yeah, I felt that way too. And then I uh, was really sick for a week and I did watch it, but yeah. that's probably the time to watch some of those films. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But uh, thank you, Josephine, for, for being on. Of course. Um, I always appreciate having you on the show because I think you give a really interesting insight into whatever we're talking about. And, Thus far, there's been no there's been no real themes between what we're talking about. We've you know we've done audition <laughs> and now we've done Dune, um, mm-hmm. and for who, sure. who already knows what's going to be next? Maybe I'll have you on for Gremlins. Who knows? Oh yeah, I mean I'm I'm up for it. <laughs> That'll give you a reason to watch it. Yeah, exactly. Um, but thank right. you again. I'll let you go and uh, you know stay safe out there. Obviously. Yeah. You too. Thanks so much, Mike. Thanks, no thanks for having thank me. You. Well, Nick, I think that's we we got a lot on Dune. We got Dooney. Yeah. Well, I don't. After we Dune? cut the episode, I'll be I'll be curious to see how much we got. But I think <laughs> I think it was a pretty good episode. I think we we're really introspective on it, and um, I don't know. I was trying to get to the bottom of why this film intrigues me so much, and I think so much of it comes down to the fact that it was an enigma. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, I would always rather have a film be too complex than not complex and not like to the point of blandness or, or disinterest. I'm, I always appreciate when filmmakers trust their audiences. Um, and so that alone, like gives it another rewatch from me, um, to try and get through all of that heavy exposition to see whether or not, um, I, it, it's a film that I really enjoy or that I'll move on from. Yeah, pretty much. But um, I don't know. I'm really curious what everyone else has to think of Dune. 
So please reach out to us. Let us know what you thought of. If you are a fan, tell us why. If we messed up information on the book or the movie, we're sorry. We're doing the best we can. Feel free to chastise us. Yes. Um, and then, as always, if you want, uh, if you want to have some say into the podcast, go to Patreon. That's how you can yeah. you can get your your suggestions made. Or get really badass stickers. Yeah, the stickers are great. The stickers are great. Um, I think that's all I got, Nick. All right. Well, uh, if you're not done with that, then I got two words for you. Watch, Watch movies. movies. Yeah, we did it. The Shameless Picture Show is recorded in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and Easton, Maryland. It is hosted and produced by Nick Richards and Michael Viers, and is more often than not edited by Michael Viers. Any TV or YouTube versions of the show to date have been edited by Nick Richards, Tyler Hanna, or Dina Volani. Our opening theme music was written especially for us by The Directionals, with narration from Zach McLean. The end credit music you're enjoying at the moment was generously provided by my friends in the band 10 Speed, and our new kick-ass logo was designed by Amanda Byers. A special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters, and to our generous sponsors at Mill Creek Entertainment and Vinegar Syndrome. We are on Spotify, Stitcher Radio, iTunes, Google Play, and Libsyn. You can find links to all these tremendous folks, as well as the show, in the description below. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe.